Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents A Space Podity, uh, where we take a deep dive into David Bowie's discography. And we do it in random order by rolling the diamond dice. In this week's episode, we landed on lucky number 14, which took us to Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Um, this album was released in 1980, September 12th. It was produced by David Bowie and Tony Visconti. But before we get into it, I would like to introduce myself and my fellow cohorts. Uh, I am Mark Branstead. Uh, with me, as always, good friend of the show, good man, and good personal friend of mine, I have Stephen Chambers. Uh, hello. This is uh, probably the the best record we could ever talk about. So if we never do another episode after tonight, uh, I'll be happy. Uh, not just because I'll never have to talk to Eric again, who you'll hear from in a second, but because uh, you, it doesn't get any better than Scary Monsters, folks. Spoilers. Uh, hello, this is Stephen Chambers. I'm a big fan of David Bowie, as you know, because you're listening to this podcast. Anyways, Eric is our co-host besides me. You guys, thanks for having me back. I, I really appreciate all you guys always inviting me back for these. Absolutely. I think you're uh, now promoted to series oh. regular, Eric. You're not just a guest appearance or a featured player. Oh, that player. delights me. Thank you. I don't know, though. A uh, friend of the show... Um, Oh, uh, Eric, who's our friend on Twitter now oh, that promotes us better than either <laughs> oh, of us yeah, do? Yeah. Um, oh, what's his new handle? Uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was. He's changing his handles all the time. Now he's uh, Black Guitar. Um, uh, also goes by. A- Ebony, Ebony Riff is what he's at Ebony underscore Riff now. Anyhow, that's our buddy. And uh, he changes his name about every five days. But uh, if I have my way, he's going to replace Eric soon. So there you go. (laughs) Depends on how much he throws in that Patreon bucket. (laughs) He's uh, Eric probably owes me money. So that's true. (laughs) That's true. He's our president of our street team. Thanks for listening and your comments. (laughs) Um, All right. So that's us. Um, what have you guys been up to lately? Rapid fire. I uh, just went down the coast of California this last uh, last week. Uh, stayed in a few places. Santa Cruz, Big Sur. Um, just took in that, uh, that, that, that Nine Inch Nails vibe in Big Sur. It was great. Um, San Luis Obispo. And then uh, back, back to the grind. So... Back to the grind, as they say. Steven, how about you? I've heard that you had to make a 13-hour trek to the Central Valley. Oh, yes, I did. Uh... Dear listeners, um, Steven is coming uh, from the coal mine, and so every now and then he breaks apart. We are doing this remotely because we've had success the last couple uh, episodes. In this episode, Steven... Uh, instead of using his computer, he decided to use his typewriter and two tin That's cans. Right. <laughs> um, That's right. Pulled the, he pulled an antenna off an old black and white TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just trying to get in the spirit of That's 1980. Right. 
Um, so when Steven uh, finally tries to link back in into our transmission, um, I just got back from Nashville, Tennessee. Um, Nashville, Tennessee is heart of the South. Well, I wouldn't say heart of the South, but definitely saw some Confederate uh, plaques. Didn't see any Confederate statues. It was my first time that far down. And I don't think it's really considered the Deep South. Um, but yeah, it was it was a good time. Uh, went to Dollywood. It was basically great America if you live here in California or if you go to Discovery Kingdom. Um, but just put a little more Jesus sure. overtones and you got yourself Dollywood. Y'all need Jesus. So y'all need Jesus, uh, top selling <laughs> shirt. Um, but Tennessee's interesting. So like on one city block, you can see five Christmas stores open 365 days a year. Um, across the street from those Christmas stores, you would often find sex shops. Uh, offer the finest vibes and creams. Um, so Tennessee is a very interesting place, right in the Bible Belt, but also, you know, if you're feeling a little frisky, put some Chris Gaines on and, you know, <laughs> see what happens. Uh, I, I actually, actually, when I was a kid, my, my best friend lived across the street and moved to Mississippi, Corinth, Mississippi, which I believe is the Deep South. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I believe and, it is. Uh, yeah. I flew into Nashville spent a little time there and then went down to, went down to Mississippi and bought a, bought a, went down I, to Dixie. I, I think I bought a bullet from a museum that was pulled out of a carcass of, of a civil war soldier. So I have that, I have that. Somewhere. Oh man. So. Yikes. Yeah. I did see some, uh, stars and bars <laughs> merchandise. Uh, good thing. That's previous yeah. episodes. Stephen informed yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, glad we finally nailed down what stars and bars are. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but glad to be back in California where it's clearly um the temperature of the sun. Um it's dry heat though. It doesn't have that humidity that pushes you into the earth. It's true. So um yeah. Absolutely. So it looks like we've got uh, a transmission coming in from the negative zone. Steve, are you, are you there? Are you back with us? Yes, I was. Uh, I went out there and I tried to find Major Tom and uh, things went a little awry. We'll get into that later. Um, I'm here. Uh, how are you? What day is it? Where am I? <laughs> Holy smokes, man. I know. It seemed like uh, we lost you there for a little, while, a little while where time had no meaning and it seemed like we fell into a different day. It, it's... Uh, I'm just glad you're back. Um, well, so me uh, and Eric, we were talking Bill, about Bill, what hold, we've been hold, up on, to. hold on, hold on, hold on, hold um, on. Is everything yeah. okay? Is Bill Clinton still the president? Uh, you might yeah, want to I don't know. This one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and well, uh, I mean, with, tell only, me, tell, with only Mark tell, and I to talk to each other, we're we're now best friends. So sorry, I don't know what that means for you, Steve, but it, it doesn't mean much. It only give me give me five minutes, and I can already prove how inferior you are, Eric. <laughs> but um, tell me this much: is uh. Are, is 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 Bill and is uh, everything okay with his buddy uh, Mr. Epstein still? Oh, oof. Um, ah, where to begin? Um, <laughs> you know, we'll uh, we'll get a coffee and we'll talk about that one. Um, but anyhow, Stephen, I uh, understand. You know, I just recently came back from my trips, um, the of the physical realm, and um, Eric has been on uh, 
his sabbatical uh, from his professorial career at Hogwarts. Mm, yes. um, so what have you been up to? Well, um, work gave me a bunch more responsibilities and, uh, I can't remember if I talked about this in our black tie, white noise episode, because I think along with that album, I tried to forget even talking about it. Um, but I've, uh, I've had a lot more to do with work lately. And that also includes a lot more driving and on the road a lot going and talking to farmers a lot. But, uh, when I'm back at home, I'm just continuing to rewatch breaking bad. That's it. That's my life. What, uh, what spurned you to uh, start your rewatch? I'm just curious. I can't remember. Um, I've been meaning to do it for a while. And uh, I'm not quite sure why I started to do it. But somehow, serendipitously, that rewatch collided with the podcast today. As we'll hear later. Tell me more. I'm not going to tell right. you more right now. I, I uh, After we discussed the song Ashes to Ashes, I believe you both are familiar. Uh, there's a, so. a a bit of a tie in there, but we'll get to that later. Anyhow, Fantastic. though, I mean, it's very it's it's a very lukewarm hot take, but uh, it holds up. And I've actually had to pump the brakes on on finishing it because uh, I don't want I don't want the ride to end, even though I know where the uh, roller coaster gets off. Yeah. That's a good one. I mean, um, an all-timer show of uh, just the performances. Uh, I, I don't question why you'd want to rewatch it. It's just sometimes when you go through a, a big work of art like that or content, sometimes it's hard to circle back because it's quite a very dense show. It is, but it goes down smooth. and uh, It does. It, 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 it's just, it's, it's like... If I'm going to sit down and try to rewatch, we've, we've discussed this before. The Sopranos, for example. The Sopranos has yeah. like those dreamscape episodes. And sometimes those take a bit more patience than I'm willing to give them. Uh, Breaking Bad always, even with that episode where it's just them trying to uh, kill a fly in that lab, it's always lean and mean. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, yeah. It, it's, uh, it always has a, a, a feeling of propelling forward. I remember the uh, the episode. Why episode was that directed by Ryan Johnson? It was uh, Ryan Johnson who directed. Uh, I'd say one of the best Star Wars films. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Come at us, Twitter. <laughs> right, go ahead, Derek. What were you saying? I was just saying. I remember the. I, I watched it from the beginning, but the episode where I was completely sold uh, and all in uh, was relatively early. I can't remember what season one or two, I believe, but. It was I had just gotten done reading an article about this kind of wave of music coming out of Mexico that was sounded very much like traditional mariachi music, but it was their equivalent of gangster rap so much where it was like mm-hmm. tales about, um, you know, tales about cartel and uh, and people would get shot up in the, at their shows. And then Breaking Bad starts with a, a ba- an exact band that they talked about in that article playing like the story of Walter White, but through that genre I'm pretty, of music. I'm pretty sure that season three, earlier on in season three. Yeah. Tortuga. And yes, that, yeah. that, uh, that, that band does, uh, the, the song about Heisenberg. Right. And, uh, right. it's actually, yeah, it's like a, it's a whole music video they made. It's, yeah. They really yeah. went all in. Yeah. It's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So good. Anyways. <clears throat> yeah. Um, in, in my, in my rewatch of it, 
I, I liked him the first time around, but I find myself completely enamored and uh, always pulling for Hank Schrader more so <clears throat> than I did even the first time. <laughs> yep. He's just a, he's a, he's a, he's a lovable goofball trying to, to do the right thing. That's a, you know, sometimes he says something that's not what you should say in a public setting, but at the end of the day, uh, he's more of a, a good person than almost every other idiot that's, uh, he's surrounded by. So it's true. It's true. Yeah. Well, because the show starts from Walt's perspective and he always looks like the perfect brother-in-law that like has the perfect life. And, but that's all Walt's an addict. That's seen through his lens of that because, you know, as it goes on, Hank's the one with the heart, really him and Jesse. And it also turns out that Hank's life just might not be that perfect. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Anyhow, any listeners out there, if you've never heard of Breaking Bad, uh, I suggest <laughs> it. <laughs> awesome. And uh, yes, and I, I definitely so, will be plowing into a rewatch of uh, Better Call Saul up until whatever is left, uh, which, uh, you know, the, the, one of the things I about Breaking Bad that I loved was that the three of us are all Bob Odenkirk fans dating back until our early 20s. And uh, the fact that they took him and elevated, he helped elevate the show to a, another status and it elevated him to another status. It always endeared me to the show even more. Uh, you know, something that you really enjoy and then one of your favorite guys shows up in it. And, uh, you know, ever since then, uh, Bob Odenkirk, even though he's a legendary comedic guy, it, it gave him uh, a, a sense of prestige he didn't have before. And he never expected. I mean, for Christ's sake, he's a he's a goofball with a comb, comb over. But uh, right, he's great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, shall we shall we take a trip to 1980? Or is there any? Do we have any breaking Bowie news? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's it's it's, uh, it's not breaking. Well, we'll call it yes. Breaking Bowie news. Should we call it that from now on? Uh, Why not? Yeah. There you go. Eric. Yes. Tell us all about it. Oh, uh, are we talking about the, oh yes, there was a actually pretty big for what it is, but to commemorate the moon landing, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, uh, old friend of the show, Tony Visconti, uh, reworked, uh, another version of space oddity, um, and, uh, remastered it and actually made it pretty lush. Um, sounds quite a bit different from the original. Um, it's just, as you've seen on the show now, they've remade that song six, seven times or something. So maybe it takes some of the magic away from it every time they do a new one. But it is, it's a nice sounding, sounding uh, a remake. And then um, front of the show, help me out with his name, director of Crow City of Angels. He, uh, Tim Pope. Tim Pope directed the video actually with a live performance of the song from Bowie's birthday and then actual promotional footage of him, like walking in slow motion over a puddle and uh, just kind of spliced them together into this, you know, it's just cool. Cause it's new footage and then released that as an official video. So kind of, kind of big Bowie's new Bowie news. So it's out there. There you yes, go. Big, big um, breaking Bowie. There it is. Yeah. BBB. I, how'd you, I, I listened to it. I, I basically kind of just was like, Oh, Another version of this song. That was me. Yeah. Like I said, I thought it was lush. I thought it sounded really nice, but the magic's kind of gone every time they remake that one. So, yeah. Mark? And I didn't listen to it. Sorry. I uh, I made the joke. How many times we need to record this song? We did it three or four times too many. So let's, uh, 
Yeah, like uh, if we're uh, gonna, but it's a great song. But come on now. Yeah, if we if we got to reach back and record early shit again, let's go with something a bit more uh, dynamic and boundary boundary stretching, like the Laughing Gnome. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There it is. Give me, give me the Heckling Gnome and the Chortling Gnome and the <laughs> Giggling Gnome. Give us a give us a remix with uh, Quasimodo doing the gnome parts. And uh, there you got yourself a stew. You say that now, but you've just cursed us to roll a number one on our, <laughs> next, on our next diamond roll. So, oh no, nice job. I, uh, crit, uh, crit, that could be a crit fail when you roll a, a one. It's, it's that's bad. You don't want to roll that in, in uh, RPG games, board games. That's uh, bad news. Uh, thanks, yeah. Eric. Uh-huh. It'll appear to be our last episode if you want to believe it. It'll be the last thing we have to do. <laughs> Um, going out on a so high note, Eric, tell <laughs> yeah. us all about exactly. <laughs> was, uh, tell us a little bit about the year 1980. Sure. Um, so 1980, you could buy a new house for $68,000. Um, gallon of gas was a dollar 19. Um, uh, and your average income was about $20,000 a year. Mm. Uh, some big news of the of the year. Um, small earthquakes near Mount St. Helens in Washington State ended up blowing that volcano, um, killing 57 people and inspiring two films about volcanoes called Dante's Peak and Volcano. So where do we where do we fall? Where do we fall, folks? Oh, that that one is that's not I've like I've never seen volcano. That one is not like the Armageddon Deep Impact one where there's clearly a victor. They're both bad. Dante's Peak, I mean, I don't know. Volcano has Tommy Lee Jones and uh, well, then that's it. Don Cheadle. Then you, you, yeah. you answered the question. <laughs> so I guess that wins. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so big news that will affect this album actually was John Lennon was murdered by an obsessed fan, Mark David Chapman. Uh, he got an interview from John Lennon, or not an interview, uh, a, uh, a autograph from John Lennon that very morning and then waited outside his apartment. John and Yoko came back from the recording studio and uh, devastatingly killed him, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about how that affected the album because he and Bowie were, were thick as thieves, as we've mentioned. Yes, yeah, so a, co- a couple of things to that. Um, I've mentioned this in the show before, but I'll mention it again, that he was shot four days before I was born. And uh, cosmically, as much of a tragedy as it is, there was no way a man of my genius and intellect could enter this earth if we didn't get Lennon out of here. So that's, uh, you know, it's it's, to everything a balance. Um, (laughs) That's right. Like the Highlander, there can only be one. (laughs) Exactly. Um, There is a pretty good episode of uh, Disgraceland that kind of goes through... um, uh, that whole Mark David Chapman, um, it, it's very highly sensationalized, but it's, uh, it's very interesting. Todd Rundgren definitely plays a role in that, um, in the sense of Mark David Chapman was getting very obsessed with uh, Todd Rundgren, and he was getting more pissed off at the fact that John Lennon wasn't more like Todd Rundgren. It was interesting. Oh, that's, wow. I could see, yeah. I, I could never, I, I could never uh, sympathize with that, but I could... That's interesting. I, I can see how a crazy per fan would go down that road of you're not being as much as like this other person. That's totally not you. That's weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. as a, speaking of podcasts and what Mark was just talking about is a podcast, Disgraceland. Uh, 
recently the WTF podcast with Mark Marin uh, had Sean Lennon on, and they talked quite a bit about his memories of his dad and Yoko Ono and also his uh, collaborations with Les Claypool. I think it was really good. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a good listen. Uh, I mean, give me just a brief, like, 30 seconds on what he talked about with Le- about Les Claypool. Oh, he kind of says to him and Les Claypool, they, uh, as you can expect, they don't just sit down and like, we're going to write this kind of record. It's kind of a uh, freewheeling type of uh, deal. Um, Les kind of comes up with the vibe, and then he throws his Sean Lennon-ness on top of it. I don't know. Um, All right. He yeah. really seems to like him. Uh, I, 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 what I would like is for the Mark Maron to get Les Claypool on the damn show. But uh, that would be amazing. Yeah, be stories, fun. the stories to be told. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I haven't. I listened to that first album they made once. I have not listened to the second one. I should give it the time of day. It's got to be a step up from that jam bandy stuff or even modern primus just because Sean, Sean Lennon, not, I, I remember I had, he had that big album in the nineties and I had it and I wasn't crazy about his singing, but that man can produce a, a, a pretty layered album. So I could see them working pretty well together. And the cool thing about Sean Lennon is he's actually very uh, self-aware and he even thinks his early stuff was terrible. And he, he, he acknowledges that he's like, you know, I know what my last name is. And right. uh, he, he got better as an artist. Uh, and he's just, he's actually just a great, uh, he has a lot of cool philosophies about, uh, he's a very unique guy because who else? You're the son of one of the best pop stars of all time who died. And your mother's a, uh, very well-known avant-garde artist. He's got some perspectives about parenting, even though he doesn't have any kids because of the way his parents were that I found really interesting. So. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, I'll have to give it a listen. Another big, this is something I didn't know about. Apparently there was a, a severe heat wave in the Southern United States. Oh, uh, Jesus Christ. I, know. Uh, I can't, we can't relate to that at all right now. Can yeah, we? <laughs> yeah. Well, this one, th- this one apparently we're so unprepared for it. It killed over a thousand people, which is crazy. I, I mean, that's wow. like, that's like, that's rampant. I, I can't believe I hadn't heard about that. So, um, yeah. What did temperatures get to? I mean, and your notes, did you see well, honestly, like you have enough days where it's just even a hundred and you're not prepared for it. Um, and then add the humidity to it. I mean, who knows? And the people that aren't used to that and they're, they're not staying hydrated and stuff like that. It doesn't even have to get that high. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, big, I'm just wondering oh, if, yeah. uh, go on. Uh, this climate change, you know, has increased, you know, the, uh, the prospect of, uh, a death count getting higher, but maybe as we've come more accustomed to these, Hot summers, no matter where you are, I guess more preparation now. It's, it's, it's called adaptation. It's like, why we're all growing scales. Are you guys That's like true. me to where uh, you used to be like, oh, better keep an eye on that PG&E bill. And this summer, I've just been like, whatever. It is what it is. Right. Yeah. That's, I've that given area. up on that like about three years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, every, I'm, I'm where you are, Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just like, just run I'll that, pay yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Whatever you take for me is fine. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah. so, uh, big movies, of this year, uh, we got empire strikes back. We got, never heard of it. Heard of that yeah. one. Oh yeah. We got uh, superman two, And, uh, we got a couple, uh, one. got a couple, uh, dolly, dolly, uh, to bring up dolly, a couple dolly movies, coal miners, daughter nine to five. Hey, so I was, Wait, in no, the, she's not I been was... coal miners, daughter. Never mind. 
Did she do music for it or something? That was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sissy Spacek. That was yeah. In you're Man's absolutely daughter. right. So nine to five was the only yeah, one. They look, they don't look. They look exactly the same. <laughs> <I don't>. um, <laughs> so nine to five is great. Yeah, and uh, I was in the negative zone for a while there. Did Mark talk about his travels? He did. He talked about I did okay. talk about uh, going to old Dollywood, the old D Wood. Good. Yeah, um, I was, I was yes, very, it was very something. happy to learn. Learn you went there. So, uh, music. Yep. Uh, big music of this year. Um, ABBA was still holding on strong. Um, Alice Cooper, Casey and the Sunshine Band, um, Blondie was blowing up. Black Sabbath, nineteen eighty. Which what was the lineup in eighty? Yeah, that's that's like uh, that. That would be the. I, I'm gonna say that's Dio time. All right, that would make that would be good. Yeah. So um, hell yeah. Yeah. And then uh, uh, the cars were big. What do you, how do you guys feel about the cars? I'm exposed to them a lot at home. It's one of my wife's favorite bands. But uh, I don't know. How do you guys feel about the cars? Um, I think they've got some excellent hits. Um, I don't ever, ever thinking uh, that I've ever listened to any of their full length albums all the way through. I think I've listened to some best ofs. And their hits are undeniable. Yeah, they're uh, such a weird I'm band. I'm fine with. I'm fine yeah. with cars. They're they're, they're weird. They they're kind of hard band. to describe because they they kind of do traditional rock, but with some definite like '80s synthy stuff going on over it. And uh, and it's their their hits are catchy yeah. as hell. They're just, they're just kind of strange. Yeah, I like I like the cars. They're basically if uh, Tom Petty started a band with Gary Newman. They're good. There you go. That's a good description. That's a really good descriptor. <clears throat> I'm a big fan of that song. Uh, it is. I remember it playing on Y92 when you know they played adult hits. Uh, was Drive, um, and Deftones do a pretty damn good version of that. The on, Deftones like, usually albums. The Ooh. Deftones usually do great covers. The Deftones usually play great songs. Also, the Deftones release some cryptic image that this week they're gonna post something. Who knows what it hey. means? All right, maybe All a new right. album. There you go. Um, and that's, yeah. And that's, that's what I got, but I'm sure, uh, that's the world of art and, and, and world events, but I'm sure in the world of sports, there was something um, there, Steve. Listen, I don't, I don't, I don't hear that song yet though, because <laughs> did you even talk about TV? Uh, TV was not on my list this time. TV was not on my list. Did TV not exist in 1980? It did exist in 1980, but for some reason, this website sometimes captures TV and sometimes doesn't. Hold on a second. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever thought about looking at that thing before we record? <laughs> I did. I, I, I copied and pasted all, all the, all my favorite stuff and yes, TV huh. wasn't in there. So let's see here. Big hits of the time. Chips. You guys are uh, big chips fans. That was about in season four. Uh, no, no, <laughs> I've no. never watched Eric, a chips Eric Estrada. No, no. Okay. Uh, neither have I actually. Mash. Mash was about uh, three seasons from ending. How do we feel about Mash? I feel like we respect Mash. I feel like we do. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've watched the Robert Altman movie, and that's yeah. it. Okay. Oh, Bosom Buddies. Yeah, speaking. Bosom Buddies. Speaking, dropped in nineteen eighty. Speaking of Robert Altman, uh, Robert Altman, who made uh, the great noir film The Long Goodbye, that we're fans of. Uh, I was watching Under the Silver Lake today which is available on prime and definitely has a few homages to long goodbye. Um, I know neither of you have watched it, but I'm suggesting both of you should watch it. I will. I shall. 
Aye, aye, Captain. Under the Silver Lake. Nice. Magnum PI started that year. Now, I, I don't. I, I'm I'm hoping that at least both of you have heard of Magnum PI, right? Of course. Oh yes. Yeah. Are you familiar? Have you watched the television show? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. We got Tom Selleck. Got his uh, Hawaiian shirts. His uh, mustache. He's got his uh, his benefactor that pays him to do his private private dick gig, and he just you know max on ladies. It's a, it's a great life. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I've seen a few episodes here. Uh, I'm more familiar with Quickly Down Under when I think of Tom Selleck. It's a great film. Um, the Dukes of Hazard was into its second season. How do we feel about the Dukes of Hazard? Uh, uh, all the old stars and bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we know how exactly. mark we know how mark feels about the stars and bars well when i was down there in nashville i went ahead and i got us all three gifts you'll be seeing sweatshirts and matching flip-flops with those stars and bars on them. right i was hoping it was sure uh, just right a pair of daisy dukes for me um i don't know how my wife would feel or boss that. hogs uh white suit <laughs> uh <laughs> Three's Company was in season four. Three's Company, great show. Uh, Watch friend of the so show. Much that show. Uh, fr- fr- friend of the show, Don Knotts. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, yep, that that tracks. That checks out. Yeah. <laughs> I think we uh, I think we brought up Apple Dump- Dumpling Gang at least twice on this podcast. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's, a, it's a good show. Good good pratfalls. Uh, definitely, Eric. When Eric and I lived together with uh, other roommates, we thought it was Three's Company, but uh, we were all men. It was weird. Right. Um, right. WKRP in Cincinnati was in season three. That's a that was an all right show. It had a it had that guy that later was on head of the class. Do you guys remember head of the class? Certainly, I do. Howard Hessman. Yeah, I, I do remember head of the class. And then Billy Conley came in, replaced him. But yeah, I was a big fan ahead of the class. WKRP in Cincinnati. Um, I remember seeing the promos for it when it was on like syndication. And uh, it just didn't seem that funny to me, which I'm sure news radio did better when that was on the air. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe I'm making assumptions here. Now, I if the show Freaks and Geeks that takes place in 1980 is any indication, Dallas was a huge show in 1980, as was... Uh, the uh what's the uh gary shanley christ almighty da- dallas ran from 78 to 91 i had no idea it went for over a decade oh it's wild and yeah and then uh jefferson it was an institution jefferson's was we're still kicking so there you go oh, the, Je- the jefferson's were great uh sherman hemsley he's a goddamn saint i uh i was also a fan of amen when i was a kid where he played a preacher so uh, that was some of the TV shows in uh, the 80s. Thanks for nothing, Eric. <laughs> yep. All right. Steve. Now, that, you know, that's just enough. That's, that's all. That's it. It's kind of like an RPG game where you got to build up your, uh, your, 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 your levels there. Now, now, now we can hear the music. And there was something going on in the world of sports in 1980 where the, uh, the New York Islanders won the Stanley Cup over the Philadelphia Flyers. I know, you're, you're both very big hockey fans. Uh, the Mighty Ducks. 
Yeah. How about any sports played in the U.S.? <laughs> it's Super Bowl 14. The Steelers beat the Rams, and it was at the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl, where you'll find a great Depeche Mode lineup. Oh, yeah. The, um... The Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sure we're all familiar. They also bad year for Philadelphia, friends. The Philadelphia 76ers lost in the uh, the finals that year. So tough, tough way to go. Um, and so uh, uh, Gary Ward on the Minnesota Twins hit for the cycle. Mark, when's the last time you were watching a game and you remember someone hitting for the cycle? Sports. I think someone just did it last week. From I think Trey Turner did it. Uh, I think he's on the Washington Nationals. Uh, but shit, man, none of my teams have ever hit for this. Let's cycle. just pretend like um, like I don't know what that means. I mean, I do obviously, but if pretend like I don't know what hitting for the cycle is for our listeners that maybe don't keep up with American baseball. Well, well what's it? Yes, what's interesting is that the cycle is a completely arbitrary stat, and it actually really annoys some people, and other people find it amazing. Uh, it is when in the same game. One player hits a single, a double, a triple, and a home run. So there you go. Mm. And uh, I, I, I find it uh, exhilarating when it happens. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's nothing special. It's just a, a strange occurrence. Um, but anyhow, the Philadelphia Phillies. You see, bad year for the Phillies in basketball and football. But the Phillies uh, beat the Kansas City Ro- the Royals for the World Series, 1980. Yep. There Dirty. it is, folks. There and, goes that uh, music. Up next, we're going to do weather and traffic on the twos. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so that's 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 All the right. world. Let's see. With the, 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 the let's let's do where we were. Um, I was just about to be born. All of us were. Our parents had all recently. Uh, lack of better term fucked <laughs> and uh <laughs> we're gonna be born since yes, yes i i was born in december 12th and then you two the next year so, 1981 right so my parents yeah That's my true. uh my parents had were married in may of this year so they yeah they had they they bought a house up in three rivers california and my dad was selling solar panel panels steven back in back in the <laughs> back in the uh the uh, the glory days, a pioneer of the solar wars. My God, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know that's that makes sense. Uh, a guy that used to grift people on trying to fucking learn how to hang glide, <laughs> then selling solar panels. <laughs> oh, everything I've learned, yeah. everything I've learned about this industry, that sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> so, apparently, back then it was. Your dad yeah. sounds like he's, he's lived a life, like he's the music <laughs> man. He's yeah. going from town to town, like trying to sell, like. Right monorail he, and music he is a hell of a salesman um yeah but apparently back then it was, solar was 100 percent commission so uh so he switched to pharmaceuticals yeah dead uh at my company considering some of the layabouts we've kept around it definitely is not that way anymore right yeah. by the way i've mentioned my brothers in sales right yes oh yeah uh yeah that's it it? that's That's your story that's that's all i got i wasn't gonna be around for a while so what's your story mark where did did they move to loomis yet no 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 loomis didn't happen until like 88 um so we had some time uh i was uh, i was not born yet i was born 
um, I think six, seven months later uh, from when the album was released. And my parents were both living in the East Bay. I think they were living in Union City. Um, I was born in Hayward of 81, but uh, yeah, they were still living out there. I think my dad may have been working for UPS. My mom was probably working in a hospital. And that's there you it. Go. I don't think I ever put two and two together that you were born in Hayward. Hayward, California. Yeah, interesting. Yes, the East Bay. I, um, not the best of cities, but uh, interesting. It's a Hayward's. Kind yeah, of my a, sister was born in Oakland on the naval base. But Hayward, Hayward's kind of a poor man's Alameda. So if if you ever whatever that's worth. So. So David Bowie was in New York recording this album at the uh, the Power Station Studios. Right. How uh, he had just gotten back from uh, Berlin, right? He got back from Berlin the year before. Was it was it Berlin specifically? I mean, was he in Berlin that whole time? We call it the Berlin Trilogy, but sure. was he living in a flat in Berlin somewhere? I like to. I mean, we'll find out when we review those albums, I suppose. But uh, that, that's got that's kind of the interesting thing about jumping from station to station to scary monsters is that I feel like station to station is setting off on a fantastic voyage of what becomes the Berlin trilogy. And then scary monsters is the culmination of all the powers he got from those albums. Yes. Uh, so yeah, we will learn more about those records right. as we go through them. It's like we're watching right. a superhero trilogy in reverse order. So, uh, the, uh, the origin story comes later, but, um, yeah. So yeah, back from, back from Berlin. Um, I'm sure one of you historians are better, better about this, but I know he wanted to go to Berlin to kind of escape the LA lifestyle he was living. And yet drugs were a big part of that. And the, and the negative social groups he was surrounding himself with probably a lot of yes men and uh, leeches, so to speak. And Berlin had a, had a just a vibrant arts community and a lot of the new electronic music that he wanted to get into, um, i.e. craft work and, and, and the craft work, rock genre new neu <laughs> yep and so you know he went there did a lot of great work um but didn't completely kick all of his habits learned some new ones there um but by the time he got back to new york i think uh he was on the road to clean living and um i don't know does anybody have any gaps to fill in there on that little well, uh, i mean it, it was clean enough to where one of the big um influencers of this album is that he got sole custody of his song or of his son, uh, Duncan Ooh. from Angie Bowie. Okay. And, uh, you know, he's gotta be, a, they're not just going to give you sole custody of your kid. If you're, you know, looking like you don't know what the hell you're doing with yourself. Right. So that much was going on. And, uh, we'll talk more about that when we talk about the song up the hill backwards. Uh, he, he is, uh, about 10 years after this album dropped, he reflected on it and said, scary monsters for me has always been some kind of purge. It was me eradicating the feelings within myself that I was uncomfortable with. You have to accommodate your pasts with your persona. You have to understand why you went through them. That's the major thing. You cannot ignore them or put them out of your mind and pretend they didn't happen or just say, I was different then. So this was him uh, just kind of throwing it all on the table, uh, flaws and all, and um, kind of reflecting on himself. 
Yeah, it was it was recorded for the majority of 1980. It was released in September. Um, I don't know when they started recording specifically and stopped, but they definitely went in and they did a lot of the song structures and demos. And he left for about six months and worked solely on lyrics. And I think that's really reflected on this album. I think the lyrics are a really strong point. And he kind of abandoned that cut up thing that he was doing for a while and sat down and tried to actually just listen to the music and write some long form lyrics that uh, were more of a piece for each song. Oh, you I kind of get that vibe. Eric? I actually got a different vibe. I think the cut up, cut up thing did does still exist. Well, it uh, doesn't. So that's that it, unless uh, all the history books lie. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I, I must, I know I have a specific article that said he still did it, but what he did differently on this one was he wasn't improving uh, melodies anymore with his singing, which I guess before he would just go in, like he would actually rehearse how he was going to bring the melody into his vocals. And that was the part that was much more practiced, but Hey, if you found that in a book, I'm going to go with you. So, well, no, I will, I will agree with you that specifically, yes, the improv is was he, he wasn't doing that as much anymore. I read that as well, right. but, uh, no, I, I, uh, in that, uh, Oh Christ almighty, I better find inside it. That Bowie book I bought, they specifically say that he went away for about half a year to work on the lyrics. Right. And then came back and they re-recorded everything again in London. It started in New York and it ended in London. Right. Uh, but the majority of it was put together at the, the power <clears throat> station. I've been kind of fascinated with this whole William S. Burroughs cut up lyrics thing. And I think, he kind of always would go to it in the early stages. The difference with this album is maybe he still did it, but then he crafted a real song around that as opposed to like parts of diamond dogs or whatever, where he just did it. And he's like, that's the song hit record. I'm doing it. So I think he, he continued using that method in, in, in like early ways to get the creative juices flowing. But um, you're right. He's perfected it into an actually like crafted song at this point. So uh, who was the uh, lineup on this bad boy? That's yeah, good so news. Scotty was back as, as a producer, and um, we haven't talked about these albums yet. We've obviously listened to them many times, but the Berlin Trilogy, I'm sure he was around. I specifically know he was around for Heroes because I've watched a goddamn half-hour documentary on that song. But I don't know where the line between Visconti and Eno is on those three albums. But for this one, he was definitely a heavy hand. Um, yeah, David Bowie on the vocals, synthesizer, the piano, the saxophone, Many backing vocals. Uh, our friends Dennis Davies, George Murray, and Carlos Alomar, who formed together on Station to Station, and they were on Low, they were on Heroes, and they were on Lodger and this. So for Station to Station and those three albums and this one, you had that same rhythm section. And my God, it, doing this podcast has made me realize how important those guys were to those seminal records. Oh, yeah. um, they're just a just a powerful fucking band, and they they shine on this album. Right. Now I know Carlos Alomar stay, stuck around, but did the other guys? At least some of the guys. I know this was their last outing. Yeah, with Dennis Bowie. Davies and George Murray and Fripp. Uh, also, they never yeah. come back. Okay, uh, Carlos Alomar. He's he's around. He's he's around here and there all the way up until uh, the next day. I think. Um, additional musicians: Chuck Hammer does some weird guitar work. Uh, Robert Fripp is on Fashion, It's No Game, Scary Monsters, Kingdom Come, Up the Hill Backwards, and Teenage Wildlife. Uh, Roy Britton, uh, Bruce Springsteen, who was also on Station to Station. He's part of the East the e Street Band. And Springsteen was recording The River right next door when they recorded this album. 
And you actually, in a few tracks here, this is not just me being the Springsteen nerd, you hear it. You hear that piano work that's of the E Street Band. I'll point it out. Um, I love it. Nice. Uh, a pretty funny thing that happened was that uh, they were recording the albums at the same exact time, and sometimes they would have lunch together, uh, the Bowie Band and the E Street Band. And one day, Carlos Alomar actually asked Bruce Springsteen what band, uh, what he, uh, hey, uh, hey, guy, so what part of Springsteen's band are you? And apparently Carlos Alomar had no idea who Springsteen was. And uh, <laughs> yeah, David Bowie noticed that and got a kick out of it the day that he uh, he asked him that at lunch. That's uh, funny. Andy Clark doing synthesizers. Uh, the Who's Pete Townsend is on Because You're Young. And Tony Visconti, Lynn Maitland, Chris Porter are all on backing vocals. And uh, Mishi Hirota is the... Japanese vocalist on It's No Game, part one. Yeah. So I just looked a little bit into Chuck Hammer, um, and uh, I, he his project is Guitarchitect, which is like he's kind of known for making, well, bionic guitars and uh, and just doing crazy, crazy shit with his guitar work, um, just like very robotic sounding and uh, a lot of stuff with feedback or whatever, so... I think he's responsible for some of the interesting tapestries of, of guitar noise that happen on this album. Yeah. A lot of these, uh, three of these tracks were older tracks and demos that he, uh, went back to and uh, spruced up, if you will. Uh, Eric, you, you dug up that B side, uh, link. I listened to the whole thing. Did Mark, did you listen to that, uh, scary monsters, Demo it's called reel. the uh, Vampires of Human Flesh. I did not. Eric, how do you feel about it? I, I mean, I I can see why they never made a big issue to release it because a lot of it's not very different than what happened. Um, there is only one song on there that never showed up again on anything else called um, something about marriage. What was that song called, Steve? Do you know that one? Uh, is there a life? Yeah, after life marriage. after marriage. There you go. Thank you. And uh, that one's kind of interesting, but um, yeah, I mean, there's not enough on it to really warrant this ever getting a pretty package release, but it is kind of fun to see the seeds of the album, but that's, that's my feeling. Yeah. What do you think, Steve? Well, the one on there that I think really stands out is instead of a 50th version of a uh, space oddity, I think that the uh, demo version of it's no game from the early seventies is pretty cool. Um, it's just, it, it's very stripped back. Uh, vocals and guitar um, right but uh, the way he the um the chorus is uh delivered very well on it so if you can nice. find the demo for it's no game it's worth listening to yeah the rest of it there's some good stuff on there that's pretty dancey i think that some of the demos for these songs sounded very talking heads-esque and uh that's a good thing and um yeah that, that, that's that's about it so right, it's, it's uh, yeah. it won't change your life if you dig it up, but it's worth listening to. We'll put right. a, we'll put a link link in the show notes for for that. Very so very rarely will I listen to an entire hour of something like that, but I like this album so much that I that I stuck with it, and uh, it was all right. There you go. All righty, Mark, you have anything to add before we go into the track by track? I don't believe so. Um, one thing I did find interesting in my research was that Power Station uh, recording studio was built by uh, Tony Bongioni or Bon yeah Bon 
Giovi, I think, who was uh, John Bon Jovi's cousin. Um, apparently, the guy was a whiz when it came to acoustics. Hmm. So it's a pretty famous recording studio in New York and uh, built by a guy who definitely was obsessed with great acoustics. And that happened to be John Bon Jovi's <laughs> cousin. Power, power so Station? Yeah, it's the name power of the, Station. Yeah, the, the first yeah. half of it, the initial bulk of the songs were recorded at the Power Station. And then they were uh, touched up at Good Earth Studios in London, which was a Visconti studio. Even though Visconti's yeah. about as uh, even even if you set aside Eric's ridiculous impersonation of him, he's about as New York <laughs> as you can get. So, <laughs> uh, Tony Visconti wanted a better sound um, in the mix than Lodger, and I will be I will confess that while I'm familiar with a lot of songs on Lodger, I'm not exactly sure what that soundbite is referencing. Um, you guys may know more about what his disappointment with Lodger was. Um, I'm sure I'll find out, but so his, his goal was to really, um, clean up the mix on this album. I can only think that there's a disappointment with Lodger. I've never thought Lodger sounded bad. It's just a very manic record. And I will talk about it when we talk about the first song. Um, but as far as, uh, the actual quality of sound, it's never sounded unpleasant to me. Uh, Mark, what do you think? No. Yeah. I, I think Lodger is a pretty uh, dynamic record. Um, uh, there's a lot going on in there. It's one of it's kind of a blind spot for me for my uh, Berlin trilogy. I always seem to overlook it and really focus on the strengths of uh, Low and Heroes. Um, but whenever I do stumble on, into Lodger, I am always just surprised on how great it is, and me just not really giving it enough time yeah, and attention. It's, it's it's definitely a great and weird record, but uh, it doesn't sound bad. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah, uh, the, the critics no. in the Jay Sherman corner here, everybody oh, yes. loved it. Every Everyone was like, oh, good God, Bowie's finally back, even though he never really went away. Um, not Nobody disliked the Berlin trilogy, but they weren't exactly flying off the shelves. Uh, for whatever reason, even though I think it's one of the weirdest goddamn songs in this whole catalog, Ashes to Ashes was a big hit. Everyone liked it. Um, this, this album, uh, Fashion, was another pretty big hit. And... Uh, I believe the other two singles were uh, Teenage Wildlife and uh, Up the Hill Backwards, actually. Um, I might be wrong about Teenage Wildlife. I definitely look who wasn't prepared. Um, the, the, I think the, four, uh, so the fourth single was Up the Hill Backwards. The third one was Scary You're Monsters right. and Thank Super you, Creeps. A- yeah, Ashes to Ashes and Fashion. Yeah. So this one only had four yeah, well, singles. Yeah, well, almost half the album. But yeah, <laughs> so Ashes to Ashes, yeah. Fashion, Scary That's Monsters, true. and Up the Hill Backwards. Um, yeah, uh, four or five stars across the board. Um, I, none of the reviews I read really said anything that was worth quoting. Uh, so there you go. Everyone seemed to be a big fan. Yeah. So what's uh, the... Bowie, um, said, uh, Bowie said, more and more... I'm prepared to relinquish sales as far as my records go and stick to my guns about the kind of music I really want to make. And um, that's what he said when this album was released. Uh, Clearly that philosophy, there's a sliding scale to that philosophy for Bowie. (laughs) That would happen afterwards, (laughs) but, (laughs) but uh, that's where where his head was when this dropped. And it really is a culmination of his experimental and his pop sensibilities in the most perfect way. No, yeah, I think this album is very avant-garde, but also very catchy. And Visconti, like, they they sat down. You can tell they were like, all right, let's try to put 
I think they really put a lot of effort into making this album accessible. Um, it still has a lot of, uh, I, I'm going to use the word avant-garde a lot tonight because I don't have any other new romantic avant-garde sounds is what it, they keep going, g- going to for me. But, uh, at the same time, it's very catchy still. Um, do you guys remember the first time you heard this record? I do. Um, it, uh, it was later in my collection of, you know, collecting all of David Bowie's discography. Um, it's, uh, blew my socks off. I was always, um, I did see ashes to ashes, the music video, um, quite a lot on VH1 and MTV. So I was very well aware of this song on this record. Um, but then seeing what the rest of it, what the album was and, you know, I'll be honest, uh, Trent Reznor, um, his collaboration with David Bowie, um, and his, uh, tour, which I'm sure that we'll talk a little bit more about later, um, where they did the song scary monsters together. So I was very well aware of this album before actually diving into it and how well it was received by people that, I, uh, always appreciated their, their output. So, um, it blew my socks off. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what year, uh, or how old I was when I first heard it, but I can tell you, um, it quickly raised, rose to the top of what I feel is his best work. Um, initially there wasn't like, Oh, this album has to grow on me. It was, it was almost immediate. Uh, reaction of how great it was. I do remember hearing it all the way through actually with you guys at work at the record store. I'm sure one of you put it on. I had heard bits and pieces. I'll get to them later, but when I heard it, but I heard little bits and pieces before then of songs uh, or, or uh, like, you know, scary monsters with the nine inch nails show and all that. But uh, I just remember at some moment, halfway through just the first side of this album, uh, remember the day at work hearing it. I'm like, wow, this, this is a, like a perfect album. This is like, I, I, this, this, this album may have changed music forever. It's so good. So. Yeah. I don't, I, remember, I don't think I remember one probably, of you all. I, yeah. I, I don't think this album was ever as popular as it should have been for what it did. I think that this album should be up there with the, when you're talking about the all time classics of the world, it should be up there. It should be, if you're going to talk about David Bowie, if you want to like talk about Ziggy Stardust for half an hour, well, you better follow it up with an hour of this album. It should be up there with uh, when you talk about the wall or some such. It's uh, it's that good, right? And um, absolutely. But no, when I yeah, I I don't remember the. It, it's one of those things where I feel like it was always with me, but I definitely know I didn't listen to it until my late teens or my early twenties, all the way through. And that definitely was when I went through and I bought the used copies that we talked about before of the the Ryko uh, releases of these Bowie albums. And um, it probably was when I lived with Mark in Roseville. Uh, I probably took out Lodger and put this in directly next. I, I, I'm sure I bought him at the same time. But uh, my goodness, I've always loved it. And uh, we'll talk about it tonight. And I, uh, I think that even though I felt that I knew it about as well as you can know a record, that having to do homework made me be like, holy shit, it might be twice as good as I thought it was, which is bizarre. But yeah, it's true. So it is true. Yeah. Proof is in the pudding. Let's play the first song. All right. Let's hear a little bit of it's no game. Number one.
It's No Game, part one. Uh, is it part one? Part one, I think. Yeah, it, uh, it yeah. opens up with the sound of a uh, a tape machine starting. And um, that kind of loops around to the, the end of the album when you hear the song again. I think it's a neat little trick. Uh, this song, I I was baffled the first time I heard it because it's a very, I think, a caustic song. Uh, the way it's delivered is very manic. And that's the same word I use to describe Lodger. I think it's a great opening track because I feel like it picks up the kind of intensity of the album Lodger. And you might think, oh boy, am I in for Lodger part two? And you're not. And when we discuss the next track, I'll talk about how this is not Lodger part two. But I think that coming out of the Berlin trilogy, which is so experimental, opening up with a very experimental track uh, that has him kind of screaming the lyrics. And also there is a Japanese woman speaking the lyrics in Japanese is a a very bold way to open up the record. And it it could have blown up in their face, but I think it, it gets off on the right foot. Uh, Bowie said he, he uh, had um, uh, Hirota. uh, What's her first name? The the Japanese uh, singer or actually she's an actress. She's an actress. Yeah. Mishi Hirota actress. Um, His, his explanation is he wanted um, to kind of like break down a sexist attitude towards Japanese women and, and girls. Um, the, the quote doesn't go into more of what he meant. It may have been a, a thing of the time, but I mean, she definitely comes out as a very, as a strong voice in the song. Um, and yeah, the, the, the beats funky and he is wailing. Like he, th- this is almost his most, as Steve would put it, avant-garde singing that he does on the whole, on the whole album, like he is um, screaming at times and it's, it is very abrasive more so than on any other song on here, I think. Um, and it just starts like, yeah, this is exactly what you were saying. What are you in for? So. Yeah. Well, the, he definitely, he does a lot of uh, different vocal uh, approaches on this record. And as far as she goes, yeah, what, what it is, is that in Japanese culture, I am not familiar with the Japanese language that much, but I do know that there is a masculine and feminine. And also there seems to be a senior and a junior style of speaking um, elders and youngsters. And in this, you have a younger Japanese woman singing, if I understand correctly, using verbiage and inflection that a masculine senior would use. So it's very uh, topsy turvy. Yeah. Actually it says here that I guess the stereotype was, uh, that the J- Japanese women were sweet and demure, demure and like not really that you would never hear them speak up about politics or anything like that. So he wanted to have just that person to be the loudest voice in the song. So, so I love this song. I think that this is a great opening track. I uh, just thinking about it, I don't think I've ever and will ever hear mm-hmm. Bowie sing this aggressively. He, shred, he shreds his vocal. It sounds like um, he's shredding his vocal cords. Yeah, it does. And one of the reviewers from Enemy Magazine uh, was saying it sounds like he's really singing um, his intestines out. And uh, you can really feel that, that anger and frustration. Uh, one of my favorite parts of this uh, song is the documentaries on refugees 
couples against the target. You throw a rock against the road and it breaks into pieces. Um, and then it goes on to say, put a bullet in my brain and it makes all the papers. But how he says it in this uh, uh, version, he's like sneering that. I mean, in, uh, in the later part of uh, It's No Game Part 2, um, there's definitely mm-hmm. more of a resignment. And we'll talk about it when we get there. But I just love that imagery. Put a bullet in my brain, it makes all the papers. And obviously, um, this album was released before the assassination of John Lennon, though. Um, John Lennon was uh, assassinated in December, and this album came out in September. Um, So I just find that um, illusion quite intriguing. Um, And, uh, yeah, no, I, I... Everything that you guys said, Robert Fripp is on guitar on this one. Um, and I think it was Eric that brought this up when we did our Nine Inch Nails season, that there's a sample uh, from Pinion uh, that's slowed and in, revu- uh, in reverse um, that uh, is from this song. Yeah, the uh, I was trying to figure out what it was, and um, the... Cause I listened, I listened to opinion and this like back and forth, like three times <laughs> one night just to see like what, it, just Trying to see to what it was. It. And I think there's a guitar lick that they actually reverse. And, uh, yeah. And then yeah. that's the one that, that, then that's the, that, that's the, that's the one that, that brings you back to the loop. The one that's at the very end. I think yeah. that's, that's the, that's the moment. So just kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, sorry, go Fripp, on. Fripp definitely, this, this is the, you, the frips all over this track and you you're informed that, you know, this is going to be a uh, David Bowie and almost Robert Fripp album. Um, unlike on heroes, I think Robert Fripp might just be on heroes and maybe another track off the top of my head, but he's all over this record and he definitely informs some of these yeah. songs where he manages to slide in. And do he has this ability like King Crimson? We talked at length about uh, our last episode. Yeah, when he's doing King Crimson, he leads the show. But when he's collaborating with others, um, I don't actually. I kind of I, I recant part of that. King Crimson is a lot of collaboration there. Shit, they're improvisational, but it's definitely his band. But when he's working with others, he manages on this. And I'm not as familiar with this stuff with Brian Eno, but I want to be, and I'm going to make time for it. I've listened to a couple of those albums, maybe through once, but yeah, they're more ambient. Anyhow, neither here nor there. But my point being is that when he works with others, he knows how to get in and get out without being intrusive, but definitely saying, Oh, hello, I'm Robert Fripp. This is how I play the guitar. And, um, I think on this track, he manages to just stick some notes in that he gets in where he fits in, if you will. And I think it works beautifully on this, this track. Um, yeah. Yeah, th- this yeah. is actually recorded after part two. Part one, they they came up with the idea to make part one after they made part two. Uh, it was based off a demo from this like 1970, and the one they recorded first was the one that closed the album. Um, actually, weirdly, the uh, the the song was originally a song he wrote as a teenager called um, uh, what was it called? Uh, tired of my li- uh, tired of my life. Was the name? Oh yeah, tired of my life. Um, which he wrote when he was sixteen, apparently. And yes, they demoed it in the seventies. And apparently, the original version was just a very 
uh, adolescent like emo, <laughs> a proto emo song. It was just very like um, as like woe is me as a teenager could get on a song. Um, the lyrics in this these final versions have nothing to do with the original, but the uh, the rhythm, um, the rhythm uh, is similar. So it was written when he was young, and then he fleshed it out when he was older, and it had some discussions about someone getting shot in the head, which they recorded. And then while he was doing the elephant man on stage uh, was around the same time that John Lennon was killed right after the album came out. And also this version of the song, they definitely, the idea of a Japanese woman singing along with a uh, English white male, he kind of had the John Yoko dynamic going on in his head. Very weird how all that ties together. Right. It yeah. is weird. Um, the the lyrics, I like it a lot. Uh, the, it, it, there's a lot of different levels to the the lyrics. Um, it's part of it is kind of a satire on even Revolution by John Lennon, or like those really sing along protest songs. Basically, be, be like, uh, but then like the lyrics you quoted, Mark, basically being like, um, uh, well then when you also can't, you know, necessarily trust some of what you like of the media or sometimes things that look like a news story end up being propaganda and, um, yeah. And, and motherfuckers are getting killed. Um, so maybe, uh, this is not just a bunch of flower people hanging out and protesting the war. It's not fun and games. Like people are dying. So there, there's, there's that level right. to it. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, anyways, he's and he's angry as hell on this one. And then in part two, yeah, as you said, he's kind of more resigned to the the situation or rather older, wiser. And he knows how the world works. Um, it's like uh, get yeah. me drunk at a pool yesterday and somebody brings up Trump and I'm like, it's no <laughs> game part one, uh, which a much, <laughs> much more should have been. It's more it's no game part two around family. But uh, I, I had I had a couple too many tall cans. Um, anyways. <laughs> tall cans of what oh yeah. we've all been in there was it was it hurricane yeah. or was uh, it uh, uh something easy it was something easy it was something easy yeah um but i it's a really cool opener um and i just i i'm a fan of bookending an album with two themes of the same the same yes. song and uh he he loves to do it and i'm, I'm a sucker for it uh, every time well yes we know it was so. done to perfection on black tie white noise <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was so happy when he finally, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> finally figured it out. I'll go into the lyrics a little bit more when we talk about part okay. two. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's my initial thoughts. It's just a, it is abrasive, but it's supposed to be, um, and a great, well, I, I am looking forward to talking about the lyrics a little bit more towards the end, because the one line that I just love is the, to be insulted by these fascists, fascists, it's so degrading. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's a pretty confrontational song and, uh, I, I really like it for its yeah. confrontation. We'll wrap up the album with uh, a little so. deeper dive into that. So, uh, track two. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit of up the hill backwards. Nothing to do with you If 
So up the hill backwards. Mark, what do you feel? So it uh, starts out with that jangly kind of acoustic guitar, and I believe that might be Tony Visconti on the acoustic. Uh, Roy, Bitta- uh, Roy Bitten, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he's on the piano on this one. And, of course, Robert Fripp is back on the lead guitar. Um, I really like this song. Again, it's a Stone Cold classic. Um, I the vocal delivery, the vacuum created by the arrival of free. I mean, it's almost like a gospel and then, um, how it kind of speeds up a little bit and then, yeah, yeah. Up the hill backwards. It'll be all right. I mean, this song has it all folks. Um, it, it really does, uh, have like this propulsiveness to it that, uh, is undeniably catchy. Uh, Robert Fripp was telling him as Bowie was trying to describe of what kind of guitar sound that he wanted him to really, um, put up on this was, he was referencing Marcel Duchamp. Um, he had a, uh, he, he definitely was an artist that, um, wasn't Dadaism. He wasn't like a Salvador Dali, but he was a precursor to Salvador Dali, which was that surrealism. Um, and he basically said, uh, give me something like that. Uh, and, and just basically let, um, Robert Fripp interpret it to his best of his abilities. Um, the lyrics in here is often seen as a commentary about the public coverage of, uh, David Bowie's divorce from Angela Bowie. Angela Bowie actually has a book written about David Bowie. It is sitting up in my bedroom that I've never read. It was given to my wife a long time ago because she was really into celebrity biographies. Um, and it's definitely one of the tracks that uh, the album really talks about, you know, the whole double-edged sword of being a celebrity, right? Of being famous. There is no personal or private life anymore. Um but uh, yeah, I love this song. Yeah, no, yeah. Looking it. at the lyrics there, um, just starting off, you know, about the vacuum created by the arrival of freedom and the possibilities it seems to offer is a reference to old philosophers. Uh, you've got Sartre and uh, uh, basically saying that human human freedom is what, what, what separates humans from, you know, any other living creature is free choice. And um, but then when you're when you're a celebrity, when you're when you're in the public eye so much, then you feel less than human because you don't really have that anymore. Um, uh, and one yeah. last thing I wanted oh, to good. mention, not to cut you off, Eric, but I really mm-hmm. think the MVP on this song is uh, Dennis Davis. Uh, I think his drumming is un- just, it's great. It's, it's so cool. Like uh, it, it has like these staccato cadences that just kind of uh, uh, punctuate some of the lyrics that are going on and help, I don't know. Oh yeah, no. There's, I, there's like. Uh, do, you, do you guys see what I'm saying? There, there, a little bit like. There's, there's some like. I, I'll come back to this. Some of the production they do in the drums in this album sounds like he's mic'd in the back of a warehouse, and it sounds like that in the best way. Um, there are times where he hits, and it sounds almost like Jason Bonham esque, like where he's hitting really hard. And I don't know if he's hitting that hard, but the way they make it sound is it cuts through everything. It has a great uh, a wallop to it. That's a it's a tool. 
it's actually a tool. They there's these extensions that you could put on some of the toms and the bass drum that just give it a huger sound. And uh, he was kind of messing with some of those on the. I can definitely hear it. And then um, I, I feel that uh, around like the um, at the like the, the about two minutes and ten seconds into the song, it's it sounds like the the drums and the guitar just kind of like get a new dimension to it and get a little bit uh, more uh, dynamic. Um, I think it's, it's, it's great. Um, yeah, no, I, I think this is a, a, a nigh perfect song. I feel like the album resets itself and this is kind of where it's no game. Part one, like I said, was the leftovers of lodger. And then this song is almost the real start to the album. I don't know. It's, it's a, it sounds like the album resets itself to me, the way it opens up with the, uh, with the strumming guitar, Carlos Alomar going for it, and then just the dunt, the dunt, the dunt, dunt, the dunt, the dunt, and then Robert Fripp comes in and starts just you know layering his frippage, frippage over it, and then uh, going into that first verse, I think it's it's an awesome way to everyone to collect themselves and get this album really just going, shifting into a new gear. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I I'm not saying that the album is not. I think I think, I think it's done on purpose. I um, think it's, uh, but it does. It, yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and exactly, they wouldn't have bookended the album with another version of "It's No Game" if he didn't mean to revisit that later. And this really is the one that's that you're supposed to start feeling settled with, and it's easy to do because it's catchy as hell right off the bat. Um, the the uh, lyrics keep going on this. Uh, definitely talking about celebrity life feeling insignificant, straight up talking about his marriage, you know, while they sleep, uh, while we sleep, they go to work. We're legally crippled. It's the death of love. Just basically saying divorce right there. Yeah. Um, and he's all about the, uh, the philosophers versus the pop psychology, the whole line, more idols than realities. I'm okay. You're so, so, which is a great line, but, um, Nietzsche wrote about, uh, Nietzsche wrote about that. There are more idols than realities in the world, basically saying like, unrealistic aspirations are, you know, seem to weigh more for people than what they can actually achieve. But then there was also a book called I'm okay. You're okay. Uh, by, uh, Thomas Anthony Harris, which I guess was, became like a cliche. It was just like, everybody quoted it. It was basically like the, the men are from Mars. Women are from Venus, you know, of, of its time, I guess, which would kind of him just kind of playing with, uh, you know, being one of those, one of those, those idols in the public eye, and then just kind of having fun with his ego a little bit there too. I'm okay. You're so, so, um, but, uh, it's a, uh, it's a great song. It really is. I, and I, and I love what he's doing with the lyrics on this and, uh, for being a, I think this is an example. If this, if he had had a divorce, maybe in like one of the albums we talked about last time, like Buddha of suburbia or something like that, we might be having, a much more meat and potatoes down to earth talk about heartbreak. But um, this is him in his inaccessible sadness. And when I mean inaccessible, I mean, he's still guarded enough to, to basically write a breakup song, <laughs> quoting philosophers throughout time the whole way through. Um, but I, but I think it's great. And that's his whole style though. I mean, I, and I think it's great. And also I think that their the, the, the deterioration of their relationship was over years um, oh yeah, no, this is not like, you this know. is not dramatic. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. also I think the song also has kind of not a positive message, but a message of, uh, acceptance 
to, you know, up the hill backwards will be all right, which is whatever, you know, at work when shit's going downhill, I tell some of my coworkers, like, listen, one thing I've tried to do just to keep myself sane is that I know if I worry about shit I can't control, that it won't make a goddamn bit of difference. So why not just give yourself a little more mental real estate and not be frustrated over stuff you can't control, even if you know the outcome is going to be shit. And I think the up the hill backwards, it'll be all right is listen, you're going to go up the hill backwards, which is just bonkers, but everything's going to be okay in the end because what happens is going to happen. So yeah, I, I think it's uh, absolutely, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good track. It's got a, it's got a good weird message. It sounds great to the ear. And um, one thing it's, it's one of the many songs where I feel like, and I'll get to this big time in teenage wildlife where Fripp starts going for something like Fripp will start going for it and then hold himself off. And then later in the song, really go for it and finish, finish his statement. And he really does that on this track around like the two minute, 30 second mark. And, uh, the guy, the guy, the guy just brings such a, a, a layer of shading to this record. I love it. So this song originally was called cameras in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Little, uh, paparazzi, uh, imagery there, right? Yeah. That makes, that makes sense for the, uh, the lyrical content. Hey, LP, yeah. LP had a song called Drones Over Brooklyn. I wonder, never mind. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a coincidence. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. All right, next. Well, All actually, right. hold on. Hold on, uh, Eric. Yeah. I think right now we're going to tap in. Is this thing on? Yes, I've got my I got my transmogrifier. Let's uh I found these tapes. Actually, someone managed to leave a couple of uh, unknown recorders on at the power station. So let's take a listen to what was said that day back in uh, 1980. Okay. This should be fun. Bills. Something from NASA. Another invitation to the Quackenbush Choir. I have been meaning to pay them a visit again. And what's... Oh, yes. Something. Freddie Mercury. I'm not even going to open this one. We both know that Brian owes me quite a bit of money. Anyhow, oh, well, hello, uh, Tony. I didn't know you were still around the studio. Uh, how are you? Hey, Dave, I'm a Cloud9, buddy. We just recorded the best album of all time. Yes, my old friend, yes, I do agree. This is a triumph. Dave, baby, this be like a, a space oddity, jack full of acid sugar cubes and blast through the stratosphere. Well, of course. This is like the third verse of Diamond Dogs, but for a whole album. Well, of course, I, I told you, having that young man next door, that Springsteen fellow, and those roustabouts he hangs out with, I do believe it was my idea to work right next to them. Sure, I mean, little Stevie gave us his parking place, but yeah, you're right. I'll I'll concede you there. It was that wild night that you and Clarence Clemens had. Just saying, I greased the uh, wheels. It doesn't get much better than Clarence, does it? What a giant noble soul. I don't want to imagine a world without Clarence Clemens at all. Listen to me, Tony. Now, sometimes I know I go on tangents, but just listen here. That fellow, that Clarence Clemens, is so pure of heart that if he were to... Perish the thought, shuffle this mortal coil. I bet it would affect some people so profoundly they'd end up in jail that night. Like, perhaps. 
a young man pushing 30 in the city of San Francisco who may one day have a podcast about me, he might end up in jail that night he was so upset. What is a podcast? Dave, baby, I have no idea what you're talking about. Hey, you, you, you honk on your saxophone with Clarence one time and you're breaking through the time barrier, baby. Very, very forward thinking of you there, dear Tony, as always. Almost as forward thinking as this album we've made. Exactly. I've been thinking the same thing. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the future of music, but I feel like it will always reference this album we've made, whatever we call it. It's gonna it's gonna dictate the future of music. I agree. I this is just the first step in a bold new direction of art at all costs, no compromises. That's right. Writing songs to hit the radio. I yeah. Listen, those hits can suck an egg. Exactly. We we keep the band together that we've done these recent albums with. We keep moving forward. <laughs> Except for that freak Carlos Alomar. I don't really think he's got a future with you. <laughs> I'm just saying. We keep calling up Mr. Fripp. We keep experimenting with different instrumentation. And we do not, at all circumstances, care about the charts. We will not care about the hits. Let's, you know, who cares about dancing? I don't want to dance. Do you? Is the Pope shit on the cross? Of course not. Exactly. Let's not dance is what I think. That's right, baby. Dance is dead as disco. You're, you're right. Exactly. Where, where, where does chasing the dragon of radio get us? You know, next thing you know, we're writing songs about people being cats. That's just silly. And it'll never happen. That's right. Two auteurs. Working together, eyes on the prize, and that prize, baby, it's a trophy, and that trophy, baby, is artistic credibility. I mean, hey, who are you going to work with? Bob Clearmountain? Steve Lillywhite? Exactly. It's his old friend. We're on the same page again. I mean, let me just say, in addition to all of those ridiculously plastic and radio-friendly producers you've mentioned. I mean, what's next after that? Nile Rodgers? <laughs> oh, perish the thought, old boy. It's nonsense. No, from here on out, it's two best friends in the world working together at all costs. I agree. Album after album of pure, unadulterated art. Nothing will compromise our vision. So, here's what... Here, into the future we go. We keep this band together and bold steps upward. We build on this foundation we've made here, which was built on the foundation of the f- four or five previous albums before it, and we keep going into this artistic direction that pushes the boundaries of what rhythm and the brain can handle. We are going to be doing this for decades together, Tony. Like, I imagine that at least between the year of 1979 and 2000, we're going to work on at least 15 more albums together. Maybe 20. 20 is an understatement. And somewhere in there, it's going to be one of our weddings. We're going to be sharing a glass of champagne, cheersing, and remembering this moment that changed our lives forever. You're right, old friend. You're right as rain, as always. This plan, it's almost so good, it's uh, scary. What we've built here is scary. I mean, scary in a good way, like two men with unbridled power. (laughs) I Exactly. And what we can do in the future is monstrous, scary, and monstrous. Wait a minute. Scary monsters? Shit, boss, you got yourself a... Oh, God, I got beer all over the control panel. Wait, that's 
gonna make the drum sound awesome. Keep it. Well, that was that was revelatory. I cannot believe. Um, and honestly, we've always known that at the end of the day, that uh, the Deanna Troy of this whole thing has been that goddamn janitor. Yeah, that's wild. Oh wow. So um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, let's get into a uh, bombshell. Oh, oh, they! Do you believe when they opened up that closet door, the <laughs> monster they found in there? So uh, scary, scary monsters and super creeps. Let's indeed. hear a little bit of it. Right, so scary monsters and super creeps. Uh, this is a this is a song near and dear to me, um, uh, which I've often been uh, annoying. I often annoyingly bring up the fact that I saw him perform with Nine Inch Nails, and they did a few songs together. And while it's a great tidbit, what year? What year? What I, year I was beat that? that horse to death what year so was many that? Times and so much so I don't have any more cool cred for it. But that was back in 1995. Um, uh, during and this track they played live in 1983, 1987, 1995, and 1997. And, um, and they, and then they did a little bit of subterraneans and then they did, uh, hello space boy, which I knew because I had listened to outside by then. Cause I knew I was going to see him in concert and they played this and I didn't know what this was, but it sounded like it could have been a nine inch nail song. It sounded like it could have been the first industrial song ever recorded with the clanging and the banging and the huge guitars and the big drums and the, and the, and the, uh, catchy, mysterious kind of creepy chorus and uh, I always had that live version in my head and eventually put two and two together and found out what album it was on because it's the title track. Duh. Um, and uh, this song just astounds me. This song is timeless. It could have come out at any time. Well, that's not true. It's a future. It's a future sounding song uh, that could be the future of music anytime starting from the 80s on up, 70s on up. Um, and uh I do love this song very much. Um, it is, uh, yeah, you've got uh, very catchy, catchy uh, verses, um, and then the the chorus. I feel like the I feel like the chorus of the song invented alternative rock. I mean, it's just uh, uh, it's simple, uh, but it conjures a lot of images. Um, it's a little dark and. Uh, there's great effects going on over it. And I, and uh, you know, I definitely feel like Trent Reznor 
kind of took this this method of doing a doing a hook to a song um, a lot in his career. I feel like this there there is a, a, a this song I think was pretty important for Trent Reznor in my opinion. Um, and uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of weird sounds in here too. There's synths going on. There's this clanging, which apparently was a distorted cowbell that's just going like nonstop in this song. That's uh, or not nonstop, but uh, during certain certain parts of the song, it's huge. It kind of takes over. Um, and uh, yeah, Robert Fripp has a solo in this song that um, the uh, pushing ahead the dame put it perfectly. He plays every note that no one would think to play ever for this song. And he plays them all and he plays them so well. And um, it just sounds so great. And it's uh, it's just a, and he, he, he plays the notes and he places the notes all in places. Nobody would expect to hear them. Um, and it's a, it's a really fantastic uh, uh, solo. And this song is amazing. So that's, that's my two cents. I, I could talk about the lyrics later, but what do you guys think? I, uh, I also really love this song, um, the production. Um, and I, I think I absolutely concur with what you're saying about how this, uh, is very timeless. I could absolutely see this song if it was never written uh, by David Bowie. Eventually someone was going to mine the gold that was found here. Mm -hmm. Uh, the choruses, she began to wail, jealousy scream, waiting at the light. Know what I mean? Um, I mean, I, that's, I, I couldn't agree more, um, of what you're talking about when it comes to alternative rock music. Um, what always kind of struck me about this particular song was the percussion. Uh, it was very synthesized and it almost like sounded like boom, 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 boom. You know, it's, it doesn't sound like it's coming from a real instrument. It's coming. It, and I think that the, like heavily distortion of uh, that, that beat. Uh, I could absolutely see the, the through thread of where, you know, Trent Reznor was taking some of the techniques uh, from this song and putting it on to downward spiral. I mean, absolutely. I could, yeah. So I, I, one thing I just found with that is um, the uh, drums. Apparently there was a, an error when the, it, when they were setting up in the studio where all were like the mics were placed wrong and the yeah. toms were getting picked up on every other mic instead of being uh, sectioned off. And they're like, wait, actually that sounds pretty good. Let's keep that in there. That's why, it gives it that, that's why you're hearing the tone shift because that's what toms are mm -hmm. for. The doom, doom, doom. That's why you're hearing the tone shift, even in the bass drum. So yeah, kind of cool. That's why uh, there's times in this album where Davey sounds like he's a member of stomp and it's not a problem. And yeah, uh, yeah like this song, this song sounds like it's an otherworldly song. Uh, earlier when I was in the negative zone, Actually, the soundtrack to the Negative Zone is this song. It uh, it, it it's a track that it comes from another place. It uh, it it manages to not only sound like it could be recorded by a band in 1980, 1985, 1992, or 2019. It also sounds like it's coming from another place. It's uh, yeah. The sound like reminds me like it's disintegrating as soon it's definitely got that that eeriness to it. One thing that's kind of cool is uh, we I, Tony Visconti, his production credits or whenever he plays on an album, we always associate him with some of the more folk leanings. Even on this album, he's on acoustic guitar on Up the Hill Backwards and all that. 
But on this one, he had bought a new synthesizer called the EDP Wasp. And um, he programmed a barking dog sound. And so that's why you hear that rawr, 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 throughout the song, mm-hmm. which I think is great. <laughs> I think that's the sound. Yeah. I think that's the sound yeah. I'm referring okay. to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's actually a barking dog that he assigned uh, keys to. And then one thing that's kind of cool, too, is he uh, he set a uh, trigger circuit, meaning every time the snare was hit, it uh, triggered a uh, basically they were then they recorded uh, George Murray's bass into the synthesizer. So every time the snare was hit, it hit a synthesized version of a bass being hit. And that added another weird, weird thing going on. I don't know. This song. So is that why the baseline, is that why the baseline sounds so choppy? Yeah, I think so. That may have something to do with it. Although I think there was an actual baseline going on. And then they also treated his bass through the synthesizer and then triggered it with a snare to give a, a more like, um, percussive element to another bass. I think there's two bass things going on at the same time in the song. Um, it's, it's, it's absolutely nuts. Um, it, uh, you could almost, uh, the song was made, created for a light show, a laser light show. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's pulsating. Yeah. I mean, I got nothing. I don't have much more to add than you guys have already covered, but I discovered it because of nine inch nails. Um, it's an incredibly aggressive track for the Bowie catalog. It's it has this propelling drive to it that you, uh, you can't stop. That dog bark that sounds like a oh 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 sounds like a Ganon laughing when you die in uh, <laughs> Zelda Two. Yeah, um, it's so so bizarre, and it's just a uh, his delivery of his vocals sounds so cold in this. Like he's an ice cold motherfucker. Well, he's Cockney in this. He's Cockney, oi. Uh, yeah, he he totally changed his accent for the song. It's great. Yeah, and uh, you know throughout throughout the entire thing, Carlos Alomar who I don't ever want to be overshadowed by Fripp because um, he does a lot of great stuff. He is just strumming like a maniac throughout this entire track. He's a through line. Um, and then and then Fripp, my God, towards the end of the track, right before it goes into the, uh, the, 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 oh, 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 you know, that part that closes out the record. He does this scale work where he just keeps playing higher and higher and higher notes and it's just it's it sounds insane. It sounds like you're running up a staircase that then falls out from under you and you fall into a fucking pit. It's uh, wild. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. The lyric the lyrics of this song are pro. I mean, I don't know a lot about his relationship with Angie Bowie. We didn't really go into that. It's kind of respecting his privacy, uh, uh, their privacy, I suppose. Um, but it is a song about um, somebody who is. uh cold as you put it exactly and it's basically about a toxic relationship somebody who's cold with a uh a girl who's maybe uh has some social anxiety and basically gets completely corrupted in this relationship and ends up in the end a uh a broken human being um well yeah but can't you, can't you say that it's also from the perspective of someone that's a total lunatic asshole that pushed her to that, like a toxic. Yeah, no, that, that's what I mean. That's what I, that's what I mean okay. is I think, yeah, no, I, I, I think she may have had some issues going into it and, um, he was cold. He took advantage of the situation and, uh, and totally turned her, yeah, totally broke her. Um, you know, starting the beginning, she had a horror of rooms, uh, just talk, kind of talking about anxiety there. There's a lot of anxiety imagery. Um, 
looked into her eyes. Nobody was home. She could have been a killer if she didn't walk the way that she do. Just like, you know, she's a little off, but by the end and she's got, she's jealous. And, you know, if he's, if he's cold and, uh, uh, you know, if it's, if it's him, you know, he's obviously a superstar. There's a lot of, there's a lot of women around her or whatever, whatever, whoever he's talking about. Uh, she's, she's got jealous. She wails, jealous screams. Um, and then, uh, you know, by the end, now she's stupid in the street and she can't socialize. So she like, you know, unfortunately completely broke, broke her mind by the end of the song. Um, and, uh, yeah, just basically a, uh, uh, cautionary tale, uh, about, um, you know, somebody who, uh, preys on, preys on a girl's insecurities and, um, completely destroys her in the relationship. So I don't know how, if there's any autobiographical parts of the song, I'm, I'm the, the parts that do talk about maybe somebody who's not ready for a scene. Maybe he's maybe drumming or, 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 or pulling some stuff out of his real life with that, because, you know, that is definitely something he's lived, but um, it's a, it's a pretty outrageous song. So. Well, I'd imagine that uh, if he wasn't himself speaking as the, uh, antagonist. He's witnessed many other people that were uh, sure. in the yeah. rock world. Yeah. Um, other versions of this song. Clearly, we already talked about the Nine Inch Nails collaboration. Did you guys ever listen to Frank Black does a version of it? No, I can believe it though. Yeah, pretty good okay. version of it. No. And did you guys listen to the David Bowie version of it? That sounds like a Johnny Cash cover. Huh. No. Where's that? No, uh, where's this? It's on a. It's on this weird bootleg. It's, it's. I don't know if it was an official release. It's on all the streams, so maybe it was. And it's called something along the lines of like Seven Years in America. And um, oh, okay that that's from his. That's uh, from his Earthling tour. Okay, interesting. And it's got songs from the Earthling tour, but also this one in particular is an acoustic show with. Uh, it sounds like it's in like an Amoeba Records. And it's him and probably Reeves Gabriel and someone else. And he starts it off saying, you know, I wrote this song when I was in Sam Quentin with a guy named Johnny Cash. And he's joking. around. <laughs> and they go in, they do it. And it sounds like, you know, if you were to take. Um, uh, if you were to take Folsom Prison Blues, but you take the lyrics out and just apply these lyrics to it, that's exactly what he does. It's uh, it's ridiculous. Um, it's fun. It's It's worth seeking out. So, huh. Okay. Interesting. So, so yeah, this song's top notch, top notch. Should be on everybody's uh, top top 20 list for sure. So that's Scary Monsters. The next track is a song that I'm sure no one's ever heard before called Ashes to Ashes. Uh, we may as well play you a clip because I'm sure you are completely unfamiliar with it, uh, even if you're a fan of this podcast. It's true. They got a message from the action man. I'm happy. Hope you're happy too. I've loved, I love, needed love. Saw the details fall away. The shaking when nothing is giving. Just pictures of chap girls in synthesis. And I ain't got no money. And I ain't got no. 
So that was Ashes to Ashes, a song that I cannot remember the first time I heard it, but the first time I heard it, I felt like I already knew it, and it was already with me my entire life, probably because it was a radio hit, and I probably heard of it 50 times before I listened to it and knew it was a David Bowie song, uh, which is fitting because much like this album, it sounds timeless. It doesn't sound like it has a progression from left to right. It sounds like it has a progression from one dimension to the next. It goes up and down and all around. It's a song that we're going to have to discuss because words probably don't do it justice, which is why it's a song. Anyhow, Mark, what do you think about Ashes to Ashes? You know, uh, I've never heard this song be played on the radio, like a conventional classic rock Really? Radio. Are you sure? I'm Call positive. I don't think I ever have. I've heard, I mean, I've, I've heard, heard it somewhere. Uh, like, um, I think I've heard like, you know, some of the stuff off Ziggy Stardust and maybe some of the stuff off Hunky Dory. Uh, no, well, I haven't. Even be a stretch I haven't either. either. Um, but I don't think I, I think I heard it. Uh, I think MTV did a list of like the top, uh, I don't know, a hundred best alternative videos. And it was in there because the music video was like one of the first videos and it's one of the most expensive videos ever made. Well, at least at the time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, not, I'm not trying to detract that because I think my first exposure to it was actually seeing, uh, it through the music video. Um, but, but that it was, but that, I think the t- not, I'm sorry to cut you off, but to my point, yeah. even though I'm convinced I heard it on the radio before, I'm sure that I did. It doesn't matter. It was played on MTV so much. And if you were an MTV kid, quote unquote, you probably saw that video quite a bit. Yeah. Growing up. uh, I I feel like the, the Mark Curry years of MTV, this was a staple. If uh, it was this until you had ashes to ashes and then you had new year's day by you two and then take on me or take on me and new year's day flip flopped. But either way, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, um, it was. I think Bowie didn't really get a whole lot of um, airplay until his resurgence with Nine Inch Nails. And I, I mean, famously, I think my first introduction to even seeing a clip was Trent Reznor talking about it during a commercial break that MTV would be talking to a variety of artists about who their some of their influences are. Um, I remember Gibby Haynes talking about actually f- funny enough, Marcel Duchamp. Um, and then Trent Reznor talking about, uh, David Bowie, specifically him ripping off that piano sound where it sounds like it was recorded underwater mm-hmm. for the song. Yeah, no. Um, and then, yeah. then they started, I, I started seeing the video a little bit played more often, like on alternative nation. Um, and I believe I even saw like a pop-up video, uh, from on VH1 about this video. I can't remember anything. I even scoured YouTube to see if I could find any of those clips to put in the show notes. That and maybe by the time of publishing, maybe that, I will be lucky and find it. But that I can't Nine Inch Nails it. clip is a fucking 
to go back to last week's episode, it's a white whale. I uh, I looked for it too quite a bit because I remember seeing it. I'm sure I watched it with you. It was one of those. It was one of yeah. those M2 interstitials in between videos. And yeah, that's you right. brought up. You brought up. Yeah, you know, uh, they play a clip of closer him playing the piano. Yeah, I got that from Ashes to Ashes, and I'm pretty sure that that was part of like I, I we talked about this in one of the podcasts from way back when that. His goal probably was to turn some kids on to David Bowie, and it definitely was helped steer us in that direction. It did. I mean, visually, the video uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's very artistic. I mean, you could probably try to suss out a narrative um, if you're smart enough. And it's no surprise. I mean, the first line of the, the album is, do you remember the the guy from the song a long time ago, I I'm paraphrasing here yeah. um, with a direct reference to his pretty much the, the song that he was known for was space oddity. Well, besides Ziggy Stardust, do you remember a guy from um, such an early song? Exactly. And so let's go ahead and take a look at, see what major Tom's up to now. And it looks like he's uh, not doing so well. He's hitting that all time low, which we Certainly talked about in season one when we talked about Nine Inch Nails of always putting these little uh, Easter eggs on, you know, uh, that specifically is a song from Hesitation Marks, who was a junkie strung out in Heaven's High. Um, and, of course, a lot of fans believe this to be uh, very autobiographical about Bowie's own fight with drug abuse and other personal demons uh, during... A lot of the Berlin years um, and even Station to Station, he doesn't remember even recording those, or specifically Station to Station. Um, and there is a little bit of that little uh, nursery rhyme at the end. Um, in terms of the video, uh, he's wearing like this French clown outfit. I think they're called Puros. Um, you can wake up Heather and she can give me the correct ah. pronunciation. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I've rewatched, I've watched this video pre, uh, quite a bit and I've always tried to feel like, how is this potentially related to the story that he's trying to tell with uh, major Tom? I think um, there's, I don't yeah. know if that's the intention. Yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, when he's the clown and he's walking with, it almost looks like I feel like it represents art, art communities over time. Well, you know, you know who some of those people he's beach. walking with are, right? Uh, fill us in. Did uh, Eric, when you did your homework for Teenage Wildlife, did you get to the backstory of the Bowie Knights that were going on? Uh, oh Jesus! The Bowie, oh the DJ, the DJ Knights. Yeah, the the boy George yeah, yeah. part of and yes. the people dressed up yeah. like David Bowie and all yeah. that. Those kids yeah. were some of the kids that were part of that scene. So those right. kids in that video are part of that David Bowie scene. Um, right. So he, yeah, he felt, he, he already felt like he had a, a bit of a ownership or a forced responsibility to this new scene of new wave musicians. And so these are some of those kids. So he was kind of among his, the next generation of what he created during those scenes. And then obviously he's in like a padded cell and looking just like himself as he's, probably reflecting that part that prop, part is probably him more reflecting on the addiction and and that part of the song um it's a great video though it's it's pretty out there uh oh and then oh and you can't forget the crazy part that looks like uh 
you know, what is it? HR Geiger, like where he, where he's like the spaceman, but he's got all these tubes hooked into him and he's in this, this uh, dark chamber somewhere being like mined for his, uh, you know, uh, for his uh, fluids. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, yeah. that's what that made me think of. Yeah. I think, I, I think the video kind of touches on this. I think you can, yeah, addiction's part of it, but I, I feel that he's taking the optimism and the what lies out there attitude of a uh, space oddity and saying that, fuck man, it's been a decade and this world's fucked up and I, I am just a broken shell of what I was going to be. And, um, here we are, here we are. <laughs> you know, just, uh, I mean, it's know. true though. It's, 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 uh, it's, if, if you take, uh, what space oddity and, and, and funny enough, we just talked about this at the beginning of the episode. One of the many times they re-released Space Odyssey, re-recorded it, was right before this album dropped, and he did that on purpose because he knew Ashes to Ashes was going to be his part two to uh, Space Oddity. So they re-recorded Space Oddity, made a new video for it, and then they and then they released this. I think um, I think it's a part two. But gonna, I, I think more than a part two, it closes the book on a lot of stuff like. Uh, oh yeah, and, no. And uh, the pushing the, the pushing the Dame website says this, and I firmly believe this. This could be the last David Bowie song. It I might was have just been, about to reference that. I, I yeah. was going to quote that actually. Um, what he what he said there was, uh, uh, you know, Oddity opens the tale, expanding it outward, using the space as a backdrop, asking us, you know, to join along if we want to. But Ashes to Ashes closes it and collapses it on itself, compressing itself. Um, sounding like a store's worth of music boxes were opened together at once. Um, this is his, you know, there, he will make more songs after this, but this will always be his last song. Yeah. This is a, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah the, the, in some kind of dark tower way, even though it happens before the story ends, this could, this should be the end of the story. Um, right. And, uh, uh yeah, I, I think, I think the music video touches on that with the different outfits he's wearing and, just looking jaded in some scenes. Um, and that line, the one line that I love in it is, uh, I ain't got no money and I ain't got no hair, which I think means he's talking about, uh, the man who fell to earth, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, uh, hair was also a, well, a, uh, a euphemism for heroin. Yeah. He got into that a little bit in his Berlin days. So, um, I don't know that, that could be it too. But, um, and another one, I'm a big fan of that line. The shrieking of nothing yeah. is killing. Oh yeah. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm really puzzled by what it means by just pictures of Jap girls and synthesis. I mean, first off, <laughs> wow. Uh, it's, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know what that means. Uh, well, I think like where my head went with that one was, um, the character major Tom being stuck in his tin can in space, you know, when he left, I don't know. I, I guess there, there's no way to really apologize for, for Jap girls, except that's how people said it when he recorded space oddity. And that was the opinion. And obviously he had a bone to pick with the way Japanese girls were portrayed through stereotypes. So yeah, I don't think that's David Bowie speaking it. No, I yeah. think that's probably the character Major right. Tom. And, 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 you know, yeah. if he goes up to space in the early, you know, in the 60s, and he maybe has, you know, magazine cutouts or, or I don't know, 
or something of Japanese girls in his in his uh, in his spaceship. I'm not sure. It's it's very it's very out there. That that's when I think he's not quite done with the cut up style of lyric writing. Um, the uh, the one that I think I could dissect for a while is uh, the I'm stuck up here. I'm stuck with a valuable friend um, because uh, obviously friend could be it could be an expensive drug or Iggy Pop, who he was stuck with in Berlin, and Iggy Pop got it a lot worse. Like Bowie, you know. Decided, despite picking up a few habits, was on the road to recovery. But Iggy Pop uh, got it a lot worse, and Bowie is actually like babysitting Iggy Pop the whole time they were in Berlin together. Um, so that's been it's been theorized that that lyric is about him, hmm. and I could and I could see that because Iggy Pop was was ridiculous during that era. If you've ever seen an, an interview or anything, I think it's it, well, time and again, I tell myself I'll stay clean tonight, but the little green wheels are following. Yeah, that's me. dollar bills um, rolled up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The one, the the, um, the one lyric that I love is uh, the wanna, want 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 an axe to break the ice. I uh, that's oh, yeah. like a perfect sentence. Um, yeah. You know, we've yeah. talked about the meanings of the song quite a bit. We've all decided that in some way it's about it, it's it's autobiographical, but also on a comic book level, sending a man out into the negative zone, he comes back and he fucking turns into Steve. Um, but <laughs> what about the sound? Oh, what, I, about, I, the, what about the guy? Okay, well, well, hold on, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I, I have decided to not go into all of my lyric dissection on this because anybody, I, I implore any Bowie fan to go and just print out the lyrics of this or, or look at them on a tablet. Hey, listen, it's the, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the nineties. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> the really um two thousand nineteen. but the one i like it yeah the outro is you know uh, mama said to get things done you better not mess with major tom and he's always described this as um a fairy tale and uh and there was an old um at least where he grew up there was an old fairy tale that my mother said that i should never play with gypsies in the wood and um that's what this was supposed to be about that like uh, when he came back, Major Tom was a almost a negative, a negative force that parents would tell their kids to stay away from. And maybe not really bad, but as far as it being corrupting, and this would not be the first time on the album he's talked about, you know, maybe him or a, a facet of him corrupting things. Uh, and he felt like he probably did corrupt some stuff um, over the last decade, which I which I find that part fascinating. Or been so, corrupted, um, but yes. I definitely sure. self-reflective it, it, at the end of the day, somebody went away to try to get great things and they ended up being broken by it. Um, but in this song, it sounds incredibly pretty. If you ask me, uh, I, I think this is a beautiful sounding song and it's such a weird, strange song with such a bizarre tempo. Um, Oh, and it's, yeah, it's crystal clear. The song is, it's not, there's no noise gate over the song. It is, even though there's some weird warbly instruments, it, it you can hear every note in this song. It is crystal clear. Well, even in like the way he even decides, he goes through a different, a few different approaches to, to uh, vocal delivery. I mean, the way it starts with the, do you remember a guy who in such an early song, it's a, uh, it is not cheap, whatever that delivery is. And then what he does is he takes it down a register and says, oh, no, don't say it's true. And you get some of that 
David Bowie theatrics there where he's basically playing the role of two people saying, hey, man, remember Major Tom? And the other guy says, oh, shit, what happened to him? You know, that's uh, it's a great trick, yeah. I think, um, the way he pulls that off. Um, yeah. I, 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 in the vocal delivery aside, the song moves at a beat that is very deliberate, but herky jerky. And it's kind of a, uh, I wouldn't have thought of this until it was pointed out to me. It's a ska beat. And apparently Dennis Davies had a hell of a time with it. And so what they did was they, uh, David told him, Hey, take a cardboard box home and one of your drumsticks and just beat on the thing all night long. And, uh, he went home and did his homework and was able to finally figure out that strange, uh, uh, drum beat that is the, 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 is the rhythm for this song. Um, David, nice. Bully, B- Bully was good at that. That's he actually, interesting. you know, we, we tend to forget sometimes cause he's an amazing vocalist and a front man that he also could play. He was competent at the majority of instruments. And I think he had an idea for the majority of the melodies that he tried to get people to uh, help him perform. So this is one of those. Right. Um, just want to talk a little bit about, uh, the uh, the st- the uh, if you follow the story of Major Tom through his songs, obviously you've got Space Oddity, and you've got this, and then believe it or not, it's officially recognized <laughs> the Pet Shop Boys remix of uh, Hello Space Boy. They actually they they rap uh, the uh, Neil Tennant raps about Major Tom, so that counts apparently. Of course, um, then you've got the Black Star music video, and then Steve. Is this the possible connection to uh, to Breaking Bad you were talking about as another as another artist connecting? Yes, there is a. A sequel to this song called Major Tom Coming Home by a German artist named Peter Schilling. Did either of you listen to this? Oh, a thousand times. I've heard it before and I uh, I always forget that I know this song so well because it's catchy as hell. It sounds ridiculous, but catchy as hell. Yeah, no, so uh, our old friend Gail Bedecker in Breaking Bad, who was the lab assistant uh, that Gus Fring makes Walt work with, after he's killed, <laughs> spoilers for Breaking Bad, uh, they, they find a... Uh, they find a karaoke video of him singing I believe the German version of this song uh, uh, Major Tom coming home and it's absolutely ridiculous it's him in front of some really preposterous blue screen and Eric you remember that scene oh yeah no it's it looks like a karaoke video that you people like they go to a karaoke bar and they pay five dollars and then they'll get a, a DVD of their of them performing absolutely yeah, it's. A, I think it's a great song. It's catchy. It sounds like a new. It sounds like a new order B side. Um, I, 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 I think it's I, only in the early '80s could you decide. Hey, you know what? I'm gonna write a sequel to a David Bowie song and make it uh, one of my singles. Right. You know. Uh, yeah. I, it, it, it's, it, it's as if. Uh, it's kind of like when that guy. Um, oh God, what's his name? Captain Terrific or Mr. Terrific, whatever the hell his name is, made a song all about Adam Ant. Uh, it's, 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 it's like that kind of thing. Right. Uh, the song's so personal that not only is it would it be um, a bad idea to cover this song, although I will say the Tears for Fears cover of the song is pretty damn good. I will say that. 
Well, hold on. But, hold on, Space Boy. Oh, my bad. We'll go through the covers in a second. No, no, no. I, right? I, okay. Well, all I was going to say was it's ballsy to not even cover it, but to write a sequel to a, to a David Bowie song. That's so personal. But anyways, uh, I just, I just, I just am fascinated by the trajectory of the major Tom over different artists and, and time. But uh, Steve, you have many more notes on the sound of this, this song and I'm, I'll, I, I do. I'll take you on that ride. Let's do it. <laughs> I'll take you on that ride. The one thing is that it's amazing how half of this song, they managed to make it sound like it's underwater, but it's not unpleasant. Um, did you read anything about the uh, Ray Britton, Roy Brit, Roy Bitten's uh, uh, attempt to use the uh, Visconti had something called an instant flanger. And I have no idea what an instant flanger is. What they were going to do is try to feed a grand piano through it. And it, it just wasn't working at all. So uh, what, the, what they ended up doing was uh, they, they did, they just tossed it aside. And that's why this guy, Chuck hammer had that guitar synthesizer. And that's why at the end there, you have all the weird, like it sounds like a theremin. That's a guitar synthesizer there. Okay, yeah. And that was an accident yeah. that happened. You know exactly what part of the song. Oh I'm yeah, absolutely. About. Yeah, no, they said they they had they had equipment that was just broken that that they were going to use on this. And the flanger flanger is like uh, it, it they it used a lot in funk music because it gives a guitar that wah wah, wah like that wah, 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 wah. like that and a wah wah pedal is mm-hmm. the funk sound for guitar. So, uh, anyways, that's what that is. But. Uh, yeah, no, it's there. There are some yeah crazy, crazy sounds on the song. Yeah, and there's there's that one part in the song where, for whatever reason, it's in between maybe the first chorus and the second verse, where it sounds like somebody's going and they're drowning. <laughs> you know what sound I'm talking so. about? I think so. It sounds like somebody threw Robert Smith in a fucking pool, <laughs> and. Uh, that makes sense considering how this was all part of that new romantic uh, wave and the new romantics were such guys like Robert Smith and boy George were getting into whatever David Bowie was doing with his weird clown makeup here. So it's uh, that's actually uh, man, that's notes from my brain. Every time I hear that, I always think of uh, Robert Smith using that as his um, template for his. Doesn't it sound style. just like him? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, uh, Mark, we went all over the place uh, while you were in the negative zone. Just as far as how the song sounds, you got anything else you want to add? Um, I'm sure that I'm repeating by uh, what's always very reminiscent for me is the funk bass, mm-hmm. uh, that funk slap pop bass line and the underwater piano. Um, and it nothing seems to be like hidden in this song in terms of buried in the mix. Everything is right where it needs to be. Um, I think it's produced extremely well. Um, but no, I'm sure that you guys both hit upon those uh, song structures. And I, it's such a weird song for it to be um, even considered as a single. I mean, it's a, it's catchy, but it's not like, I wouldn't say it has commercial appeal for something that's coming out. But it was a number one in uh, the UK. So I believe it. I mean, it's because of how uh, I think the music video may have propelled that into um, into that spot because people were, you know, I, I don't know. I You can't, I guess, divorce the song from the video because 
for me, even when I listen to the video, I always think of Bowie in the clown suit standing in the ocean with just the colorization of it's it's just undeniably great um but i just uh, the imagery is always just stuck in my head based off of the song one part that always gets me in this song and uh so it has that persistent ska beat but then the i've never done good things i've never done bad things the way bowie delivers those lines it sometimes almost gets a tear to my eye um if i'm trying to sing along with the song i might get choked up at that part uh, and, uh, at that moment, also the drum beat kicks up a step and, uh, it's great. And like you said, where nothing's buried in the mix, there is so much going on in this song, but you can hear all of it. You can hear all of it. It's insane. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a great, I think it's near, it's, it's nearly, a, it might be a perfect song. It's so weird, but it's so perfect. It's so strange. I can't think of any other song that sounds like it. It's, uh, it's very, very special. Um, before we get into the multitude of covers, did either of you watch the performance they did on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? Nope. No. Missed that one. Um, they did, it was the it was part of the band. Um, Carlos Alomar was there. I'm not sure if it was Denny Dennis Davies. Um, I know G.E. Smith was uh, in that version. It was actually, yeah, that's kind of a big tragedy is this record – they never toured for this album, which even though you, the three of us would not have been old enough, we would have been either in utero or infants. Um, I think a version of this band playing these songs on tour would have been something really special. Uh, it got derailed because John Lennon died actually. Uh, and that just, he, between John Lennon dying and him doing the elephant man on broad or yeah, I think on Broadway. Um, but he did a performance with uh, a version of this band on the tonight show around this time where they opened up with life on Mars and they went right in ashes to ashes and everybody's having a good time. Bowie's wearing a pair of tight jeans and a uh, red, red jacket, red, like members only looking jacket with a collar popped. And he's just, he looks really good and he sounds great. Um, I suggest anybody should seek it out. Uh, nice. I think it's great. Um, and I do like speaking of the live versions of the song when we saw him, Mark, he played it. Um, I don't know if he, did he play it when you saw him, Eric? Uh, no. When we saw him, they did this, they, they, this, this became a staple. Um, but what they would do is, you know, the song in the album kind of does like a slow fade out when they play it live. It goes into like this extended funk breakdown. And I think it uh, it works really well. It's a good way to close the the song out. Yeah. Um, there's a billion goddamn covers. Um, Eric, you started mentioning one where before I I grabbed you by the lapels of your uh, members only jacket and tried to get us back in course here. Um, it's true. What uh, you were talking about, Tears for Fears, right? Yeah, they do a really good version. It's pretty faithful. Um, their voices just lend themselves pretty well to it. Um, other versions of it is, uh, are either of you familiar with the band war paint? Heard the name, but not no. ever really dived into their Eric, work. Nope. They're kind of this weird psych dream pop. And actually their version of, a their version of it's pretty good. It's, uh, it's uh, the bass tone. I really like, um, are either of you familiar with Amanda Palmer? Yeah. From the Dresden dolls. Is that who she's from? Yes. Okay. Did you listen to her version of it? 
No. Eric? No. Don't. Don't listen to her version of it. Okay. Uh, she is, uh, she, she sounds like a, uh, a, the- a theater student reject who's doing their best to try to make up for lack of singing ability with over enunciating words. It's terrible. Um, it's just her and uh, uh, somebody on a some kind of stringed instrument. Painful to my ears. Um, have either of you heard of a guy named Maynard James Keenan? Yes. And the, yes, yeah. I've heard that version. I, I even saw him perform it live. I thought so with the perfect circle. That's correct. I'm a pretty big fan of that version. How do you feel about it, Mark? Yeah, no, it's good. I think you can also find it. Uh, is it off of that emotive? Um, it's on the, uh, they put out a, uh, for whatever reason, they thought they needed to release a live album of um, their first record. Yeah. And they put it on there as a, it's like a closing track or something. No, I, I did. Uh, I did like that. Uh, his version. I'm a big fan of his vocal style. Oh yeah. He's too. a great singer. Yeah. You know, I think, I think he does a, he does a really good, he has a really good delivery on it. And uh, I think that Billy, Billy Howardle, how you pronounce his name? Um, that sounds right. Yeah. Their guitar player. He does a really cool attempt at trying to replicate the underwater piano on guitar. Um, I think it's good. I don't think any of these covers are as good as Peter Schilling's uh, sequel, but um, it's neither here nor there. Rest in peace, Gail <laughs> Benneker. There you go. <laughs> All right. So I think we've uh, covered that song. Um, you know, you, you know, so- guys, you know, guys, we really went, we dived in deep there. And in that time, Mark went to the bathroom. He probably shushed his kids. Uh, Eric was probably working on his bills at the same time. And uh, <laughs> I let my dogs outside and brought them back in. And my dog needs a haircut. So I'm just wondering, guys, if you really enjoy a podcast uh, and you were to give it $4 a month to exist, or maybe two, but you were the people that put that podcast out, if you were to get $4 or $2 from your listeners on Patreon forward slash pod like a hole, what would you do with the two dollars or four dollars? Let's just go with the even two. What would you do with two more dollars a month, Mark? Oh man, the sky's the limit. You know, <laughs> my goodness. I uh, I guess I would finally put that down payment on my yacht, um, and uh, be able to start living the high life. Uh, so you, what you would do is you would buy a uh, thirty-two ounce of high life, the champagne of beers. <laughs> Sure. Why not? No, if anything, I would uh, put a a fund in place where we could actually start to really raise our production game. Uh, New mics, uh, space for us to actually get maybe our podcast out to listeners who, for whatever reason, want it to be on a other streaming platform that we just haven't been able to crack that code yet on how to do it. Um through as many listener requests we would be working towards getting it in the hands of more than who we already currently have or maybe uh, walking away from the service that we use now which we will not name because we will not shame but last night we tried to record and things went horribly wrong (laughs) and then the pink elephants came and uh, yeah it wasn't uh, Mark ended up in my driveway it was strange um (laughs) 
Eric, for two yeah. two dollars a month, how would your life change, Eric? That is that is two bad remixes of Bowie songs that I would buy just to have them to insert into the episode. The, the goal, Eric, just, is a, the, the goal is to try to get people to give us money. <laughs> oh yeah 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess it would be it would be to uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, buy me buy me a beer to lubricate my senses and tolerate uh, Steven steering the ship a little bit a little bit better than I have been. Um, tolerate yeah. it? Well, you, you have a problem with the captain who knows what he's doing? This <laughs> is just randomly jumping all over the place. Um, uh, that was a rough last segment, but it was a it's a great song. Uh, well, you know, Eric, I think I think you made your point, Steve. I and I, and I think uh, I think. I think we could. We, we should definitely. Uh, the tip jar needs a, a little bit more clean clang. Absolutely. Well, the, you know, I got a clean clang today, though, from a, a new user, Aaron Green, a new Patreon subscriber, Aaron Green. So, Aaron, thank you. You spell your name with. You spell your name with two A's, which is the proper way to spell Aaron, I think. And um, thanks again. So, anyhow, yes, thank you. Patreon. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, well, one day when uh, we finally are uh, on NPR, it's going to be because all you, dear listeners. So, well, that was a very unfashionable way for me to go about that, which brings us to our next track. Fashion. Hey, uh, before we get into hearing what our listeners think about the album, let's hear what a smart little child named Lennox thinks about the album. Our resident researcher, Lennox, an intern. Lennox, what do you what do you have to say about the album? Okay, it would be ten out of ten bolts. Oh. You okay. Another five bolts. That's amazing. Ten out of five. Oh, okay. Ten out of five bolts. My favorite song on there is "Ashes to Ashes," and my least favorite is "Kingdom Come." Cool. Thanks, Lennox. All right, well, let's do this little segment now that we call the fan that feeds. And the fan that feeds is the moment where we take the time for the listeners to provide their insight onto the album, what they thought uh, about it, um, in our various uh, social media gathering places. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. So for those of you that participated, thank you. We're going to do a little summary of some of your things. If you haven't participated yet, I mean, listener interaction is why we love doing this show, to hear what you think about the album. So please, uh, get involved a little bit out there. So first we have Aaron Green, who says, Oh man, I'm so stoked for this episode. And he kind of goes into how Ash the Ashes is like a total childhood track. He says, It's a pretty perfect Bowie album, M-I-O. I have to imagine M-I-O stands for In Many Orifices, or something like that. But anyways, he talks about how he got turned on to it um, uh, from the uh, bootleg for the outside tour. And he had to get that track in his collection. And after seeing the video of the guitar tap melody in the Hurt duet, he discovered his love for Carlos Alomar. Thanks, Aaron. Michael Stokes says it's not his favorite Bowie album, but it probably sneaks in the top five. But the opening four tracks may be his favorite opening to any Bowie album. Fair, fair. Uh, Nicky Nichols, side one has many hits, but side two might be his favorite of all the albums. Which is interesting if you're kind of separating them by sides. Replica Reed talks about he loving teenage wildlife but really talking about how he's a big Gary Newman fan and talks about Gary Newman's autobiography where 
Gary kind of liked Bowie's personas and kind of wanted to embrace that idea, but Bowie was not happy with Gary um, or the up-and-coming new wave artists. And then um, Replica Reed tells us that later in life there was a quote of Bowie positively acknowledging Gary's work. Um, but he likes Scary Monsters, his favorite track off the album, the drums and guitar work are insane. Uh, one of his uh, choice tracks if he's ever driving fast down the highway. I get that. I like to be a real speed demon down the highway too there, Replica Reed. I'm talking lights off in the heavy rain. That's right. I get you, pal. I see where you're coming from. Uh, longtime contributor Michael Konomos um, started by telling us that he loved the first half, never got into the second. But now he's done his homework. It's growing on me. But he hates the cover of the album. The, the, 80, the clown stuff from the 80s is ridiculous. And he goes on even more. I mean, Michael Konomos is a, a real... I don't know if I'm saying your last name right, pal, but you have got a real problem with uh, that clown work. I mean, <laughs> saying it looks like... Uh, uh, take on me but with clowns no clowns no david no clowns okay we get it um <laughs> no thank you um he's talking about how they're great ash asses is great except for the line jap girls what the hell bowie we knew better um my grandpa michael tells us that his grandpa used to wear that use that word in the 80s and we cringed um fair enough and we are going to get into that definitely michael when um, or maybe you just heard us get into that. Anyways, the second half of the album took some time to grow on me, but after repeated listens, I'm digging Scream Like a Baby in Kingdom Come. Fashion has never done much for Michael. He doesn't understand Beep Beep. Maybe we'll help him fall in love with it by going over it. And we indeed will. He also likes Trent and Bowie singing Scary Monsters together. Um, I'm so happy two people brought up the outside tour and their collaboration on that. So I didn't have to because I know Mark and Steve will literally murder me if I say I saw Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie together out loud again. Um, and finally, a goes by uh, Black Guitar on Twitter. Our friend Paul uh, tells us that Scary Monsters... Um, was a confused album psyche wise and therefore song wise and after i've listened to it again i'll have to add more info uh we know major tom's a junkie thinks he's talking about um his first commercial commercial successes and moving on to alter egos the one thing none of us picked up on was it inspired the manson lyric marilyn manson's lyric in the song apple of sodom from the lost highway soundtrack the line i'm dying i hope you're dying too that's absolutely true and then of course as we noticed in season one um it it inspired the Nightingale nice song All Time Low. And uh, Paul, who's been a longtime Bowie fan, wouldn't pick it up a- another album until Outside Dropped. Uh, there were songs he disliked on this album, um, but he's trying to get back into it. Um, I think part of the problem for Paul, as he mentions, was it followed the Berlin Trilogy, which was his favorite, which I'm sure we can all relate to. So thank you for all of you that participated in The Fan That Feeds. Um, it as we announce our next album, please, listeners, get out there and tell us what you think. We'll make sure we try to get a, uh, read it on the air. And that's going to be the end of this episode of part one of Scary Monsters. Um, it's just too robust of a conversation. We had to cut it here, guys. We know your time is precious. We'll be back with, uh, with part two where we finish off this album and talk about some more of the supplemental material. So thank you so much for listening. And as Mark likes to say, and now in the privacy of my own laundry room, I can finally say it. We hope you brought you closer to pod.